I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Superman 4 does for an impressionable child's understanding of science and international (laughs) politics and human relationships and geography and the newspaper industry and prisons and subway trains and walls. (laughs) I'm Sir Patrick and joining me to destroy Superman are James Hunt. And Caroline Cedar. That was an incredible impression. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll have to make my mind up as to whether or not I actually dub over Gene Hackman's voice there or not. Um, we, yes, we uh, will discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our, do I even need to see the word, say the word spoiler-filled, discussion of Sidney J. Fury's 1987 classic Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. We have finally, this podcast has finally got to covering one of the most podcasted about films in the history of films. Um, there are so many podcasts out there that have, that have done this film, but we're finally going to get to it as well. We don't have Natasha Leon on ours, unfortunately. <laughs> Wait, who had Natasha Leon on this? How did this get made? It's brilliant. She says, she says, Superman. Like the way that she pronounces Superman is amazing. She says, Superman. Does she say <laughs> so nuclear? Good. I'm not sure, but we're going to get to that. <laughs> uh, but yes, before any of that, Caroline, uh, you're back on the show again. Uh, welcome back for for Thank 2020, you. first episode of the year. Has anything been weighing on your mind, either watching this film or over the Christmas break or just anything that you really want to know about comics that that James or I can help explain? Yes, I have a question specifically related to this film slash the general Christopher Reeve Superman canon, which I feel like really plays fast and loose with Superman's abilities, particularly random psychic powers. (laughs) So I'm curious, A, what Superman's canonical powers are and then b (laughs) do those powers stay consistent or are there times when the comics will add in random powers as well Uh, how long have you got (laughs) i think the problem the problem here is the word canonical right yeah okay i mean yeah because the thing with superman is obviously superman's powers and even his power levels have changed down the years and like when he was first introduced in the 30s he couldn't even actually fly as we'd understand it now the whole leap tall buildings thing you know he he just jumped really far distances but i would say that there is a kind of a core set of powers that superman has and they i think they they all kind of mostly revolve around that you know the premise of superman is that he's kind of an extension of human ability really so kind of with the i think with the exception of the flight 
the majority of his powers are just just being better at stuff. So obviously he can fly. He's invulnerable except to certain things or if you really beat him up really hard. He has super strength, obviously. Then there's the various kind of eye vision powers. So obviously the kind of, again, the microscopic vision and the kind of farsightedness and the super hearing are all sort of... Uh, I've just realised I said farsightedness. I don't mean he's farsighted. I mean he can see really far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're all obviously just kind of basically enhanced, really. But then I think the the X-ray vision and the heat vision have always kind of been classic Superman powers. The freezing cold super breath as well, which the movies love to do, is, yeah, again, that's kind of one of the classic ones. And then there's things like the, the sort of, you know, he, he can fly and kind of breathe in inverted commas in space. I think in later years that was kind of rationalised as it's just that he can hold his breath really, really hard. Like in the 90s, I think they did some stories with him going off into deep space and he did actually need breathing equipment. To, to go further so he can't like permanently breathe in space he can just hold air in his lungs for a very long time the one that i remember when i read superman earth one i remember messaging you and being like is superman supposed to be super intelligent because i have never realized that before and you confirmed to me that yes he was hmm. i think post-crisis that was one of the things that they, in general post-crisis they dialed down the level of his powers a bit because kind of silver age superman was just basically you know almost unlimited levels of power and definitely in that era in that kind of 50s 60s era the super intelligence was very much a part of the character you know him sort of being super brainy at like quickly doing maths problems or being able to read incredibly quickly and stuff like that um i think that's less of a thing in modern superman but it is something that that, that straczynski put in earth one so it's that wasn't unique to that you've then kind of got things that have i mean caroline you asked the question of did the comics kind of occasionally add random things and the answer is yes they have i think with with more care than the films have i would say that the difference between the way the comics and the films have approached it is that if they decide to have him do something new that he hasn't done before in the comics so like a few years ago they added a, a solar flare power that got used like once and never again and there was a famous story about his power to create miniature versions of himself flying out of his fingers in the silver age that grant morrison referenced in all-star superman those would be treated as like specific stories it's like wow this is superman's new power and invariably as i say he'd get a new power and then never use it again i think with the films what they tended to do and which the comics i think have always been good at not doing is if the film has a particular plot related moment that they need a power to solve they will just give him that power with no regard for whether yeah. or not he's had it before or has been supposed to use it and you know this is something that we can talk about in relation to superman 4 and we will with great hilarity but it should be stressed <laughs> and i think people probably are aware it's not unique to superman 4 it goes all the way back to suit i mean maybe not the first film but certainly to superman 2 which obviously had the mind wipe kiss it had the plastic shield thing that he throws at non and the weird kind of telekinesis the only time that that anything close to telekinesis has ever really been a part of superman is again kind of post-crisis with john byrne it was never fully explained but john byrne tried to introduce something that kind of said that when he's flying and he's carrying things it's not his strength power that's carrying it 
And but it, this was like a thing where Superman realized this and was like, "Oh, that's interesting. That's kind of weird. I wonder what the deal is there." And they never got around to explaining what the deal was, except that in the Death and Return of Superman, uh, Connell, the Superboy clone, his powers were kind of replicating what Superman could do, but everything was via this kind of set of telekinetic-based powers that he had. Wasn't it called tactile telekinesis? Tactile telekinesis. Yeah, that was like a specific power that he had where he could touch things and make them explode yeah. sort of wasn't there a thing it was like if for example if he lifts a jumbo jet by yeah. the tip of its wing that's yeah. why it doesn't shear off exactly due to the laws of physics because actually just holding it means he's holding yeah. it together yeah exactly yeah so so that's kind of i think that's kind of an accepted part of it but it's not as i say I w- that's not really telekinesis in the gene gray sort of i can concentrate right. with my mind and lift things from a distance and certainly not what you get in the films of pointing at things it's kind of dull to yeah. explain superman's powers that in that yeah. much detail yeah but that's what happens after watchmen yeah <laughs> the way that i like to see superman's powers treated is that almost all of his powers can pretty much be explained as he's supercharged because of the fact that under a yellow it's not just the case that a yellow sun randomly grants him powers it's that a yellow sun makes him faster and strong oh, super speed i don't think i mentioned that one but that's in there faster and stronger and able to fly and all of that kind of stuff is actually and just an extension and <laughs> Well, no, it's, I see the ice. I mean, the, the, no, the heat vision, fair enough. But the ice breath is just we blow on things to make them cold. So Superman can just blow harder. Mm, okay, <laughs> but it's not super strong breath. It's icy. Yeah, it's icy because it's super strong. <laughs> I actually, lo- I'm not complaining about the ice breath. I love it. It's a, it's a frequent staple on Supergirl, and I always enjoy yeah. it. But it feels that one feels to me like the most random one. Actually, you know, before we move on, I'm going to flip this question to you. Has Supergirl exhibited any powers in the TV show that we might not have commonly seen Superman have? Obviously, with the expectation that you don't know every single power that Superman's had in the comics. But... Right. No, I think the ones you mentioned are the ones she covered, and then she also sort of has skills sometimes more than powers like she does like a sonic clap a couple times Mm. she just claps really hard and that like lets out it's like the sonic power of that yes you know thrusting i think that's that's definitely something i've seen i think i've seen superman do yeah um and then she learns like i don't know there's this whole storyline where she learns all these tricks with her cape where she'll like (laughs) use her cape to like wrap around somebody in a fight and sort of like knock Mm. them out but those are more like fighting skill based i feel like yeah they mostly stick to those main ones that you mentioned, mm. including the ice breath, which for some reason yeah. that one, I, w- I did not grow up watching these Christopher Reeves movies. I don't really know where my like understanding of Superman came from, but somehow the ice breath I didn't know about. That all the other powers I knew about, <laughs> but when I discovered that one, I was like, what? So I'm delighted every time it comes up on Supergirl. <laughs> well there you go so that's given a bit of a grounding in superman's powers which the film that we're going to talk about in a little while will just completely chuck out of the window <laughs> mason revision um <laughs> we're going to move on to talking about some news but just before we do just as a little bit of kind of self-indulgence for our first episode of the year about a week ago as we record this but we weren't doing an episode around the time of it we passed our fifth birthday happy birthday yay congratulations to us now, we did kind of do a bit of kind of self-congratulatory stuff not that long ago already because we hit our 100th episode and it was the Joe leaving episode. So we kind of did a whole reading out messages from people who said nice things. But some people said nice things on Twitter after this one as well. So I'm just going to go through a few of them because it's quite nice. Our friend and frequent guest, well, semi-frequent guest, Michael Leader says, been a fan since before any of that. <laughs> 
which I, you know, I haven't really kind of kept that tradition on very well, but um, just, just get Joe back to do that, really. Nick Rollins says he's been a listener since the very first episode, but or we had already picked uh, his favourite thing about the podcast when we did the 100th episode, which was Joe's impression of Aunt May in Spider-Man 1. So he... <laughs> I'm just recalling that now. <laughs> but instead, so he's picked another favourite moment, which is that period of time when we all kept mixing up Daredevil and Deadpool's names. <laughs> Deadpool and Dead Devil. I still do that. I know that I still do it now. And yeah, I don't think I'll ever shake. Either. I was going to say, I think that's going to keep happening. <laughs> we just haven't had to talk about them much for a while. I don't know which way round we more likely do it. I think, is it more that we, I tend to call Daredevil Deadpool rather than call Deadpool Daredevil? Oh, we've done it the I other think. way around too. Yeah. Hector McGregor says, uh, well, Hector McGregor got wrong what his first episode was because he thought it was Andrew Ellard on Lego Batman, but Andrew was actually on Batman Forever. But he said, nevertheless, I, I, that, that's not me being mean, by the way, because Andrew already pointed it out on Twitter. So that's not that's not just me correcting him and being a horrible pedant to someone who's saying nice things. Uh, but he said, I started out listening to films I'd seen, then quickly started listening to everything I could. And now you're one of the podcasts I put to the top of the list as soon as they're released. I still can't get my head around listening to episodes when like people haven't seen the film because I, I don't tend to do that with podcasts. So I, I'm kind of gratified that sometimes people do actually listen to ones where they haven't seen the film that we're talking about. Graham Kibble-White says, I've been there since day one through the purple patch when Joe was trying out different intonations of which as a movie fan I just don't understand. Uh, That episode where everyone kept using the phrase double down and via all those arguments about Alan Moore. Excelsior! Ned Baker says first listen yes he says first listen when Infinity War came out on the recommendation of Caroline Cedar sometimes I shout my emphatic disagreement at the stereo Mask of the Phantasm is a great story and the hallucination in Far From Home is a good sequence he's right about 50% of those but I always (laughs) love the podcast To be fair, Mask of the Phantasm is quite good. Matthew Plews says, Been with you since the beginning. The Amazing Spider-Man episodes, especially the collective rant at Amazing Spider-Man 2, were particularly fun. Joe nailing the prediction of Fury being Talos in Far From Home was great that as well. That is insane. That remains I know, insane. Especially because we completely forgot about it when we came to do it. Yeah. And when we saw the film, and it, someone, it may well have been Matthew had to actually point out on Twitter that, that Joe had got it. General Mont says that the Man of Steel episode should be dramatised for primetime viewing. Gina Freeman has been listening since the start. Uh, Sandy Nelson says, uh, Joe being right about Venom, Seb wanging on about Starman, James being misanthropic and hating Christopher Nolan, and the amazing, (laughs) amazing Spider-Man 2 podcast. (laughs) Andrew Optimaximal on Twitter says, well, I've been here since Iron Man, but I immediately went to listen to Daredevil and Batman. So he's calling himself as being one from the start. And William Holmes says, special mention for the Dark Knight, Infinity War, and V for Vendetta pods. My personal favourite, and thanks for my answering 150,000 questions I DM'd you for the Infinity War pod. <laughs> Which again, I don't. That, that and Endgame was such a blur of episodes. <laughs> I don't really remember them. But thank you to everyone for saying nice things and for being with us either for the last five years or for bits of the last five years, because it's really nice of you all to keep on listening. You know, I didn't reply to this, but I di- it did make me curious to know when I started listening. And I'm pretty sure it was like episode four, because you guys talked about Agent Carter. We you did. cited an article I had we written did. about Agent Carter. And that was how uh, I first got connected with you guys. And I didn't, nice. I remembered that part of it, but I hadn't quite remembered, like that was a pretty early podcast for you guys. So <laughs> I maybe have not been here since day one, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a more old school fan than I realized. <laughs> yeah, pretty close to it. 
that was back in the day when we actually had like enough time in our lives to to, <laughs> to watch, watch whole TV. seasons of TV <laughs> yeah. shows and actually do podcasts about them. That was because that, that was actually was that an episode on was that on Agent Carter season one or season two? It was season, it was season one. Season yeah. one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because it was March twenty fifteen. So only one of the podcast children existed then, <laughs> <laughs> which goes some way to explaining why we don't do TV shows anymore. <laughs> right. Well, let's crack on with some news then. After all of that self indulgence, the first bit of news that we've got now. This is one where I'm mindful that I've just kind of talked about. Do you know what? No, I'm going to bump this one because I've just talked about Superman's powers for a while and then read all of those uh, Twitter comments out. And this is one where I don't think you guys know the subject matter as well as me, so I'll be the one talking about it. So let's go straight on to some Marvel stuff instead. First of all, I don't think this is very surprising news, but two of the supposed upcoming Marvel TV shows have been cancelled. Howard the Duck, the Kevin Smith Howard the Duck, was it going to be animated? I think, I think so. both of these yeah. are animated, yeah. Uh, and Dazzler. So were these for Disney Plus or were these for other I think networks? They were for Hulu. Hulu, that was, they, it. I was yeah. I mean, that makes more sense for a... my my knowledge comes from one of you guys saying we are going to talk about this and me reading one article about it five <laughs> minutes ago. But I think that these were Hulu shows that were on the tail end of the like Marvel TV banner before it all yeah. sort of got under the you know MCU umbrella. So they were sort of like weird little hangers on Mm. both going to be animated both going to be on hulu and now are no longer happening so it was actually looking at it it was actually it was it was tigra and dazzler is it tigra or tigra tigra it is tigra it kind of feels like it could be either but but i think i'm just thinking of the band la tigra so it was it was a tigra and dazzler series there was going to be a howard the duck series which is the one that kevin smith was going to be doing there was also going to be a hit monkey series and a modok series and those are the two that they have not cancelled which i feel like well for you know howard the duck has got name recognition and had kevin smith involved dazzler maybe doesn't have a ton of name recognition but i would say she's probably a better bet than than hit monkey but they're going ahead with hit monkey and modok but they've cancelled you kind of think they'd be cancelling everything are they actually going ahead with them or have they just not commented on them the the hollywood reporter report says that the other two are moving forward as planned i find that baffling in all honesty yeah. especially Hitmonkey, who is a one joke character at best yeah i mean he's a one joke character if you find that one joke funny otherwise yeah. he's Which, a zero joke let's character. face it you don't because yeah. <laughs> marvel apes was never a funny idea yeah. And also the thing about Hitmonkey was that he was kind of launched in a blaze of, of kind of publicity of, oh, look at this wacky new thing we've introduced in Daredevil. And, I've just done it. I've just said Daredevil. <laughs> uh, Here's this wacky new thing we've introduced in Deadpool. And I like I don't think he's appeared since at nah. all, ever. So that is a weird one. You know, I think of the four of them, if I was looking forward to any of them, uh, uh, Kevin Smith, Howard the Duck, maybe, although I can also see the Watchmen-esque arguments against not actually doing anything with Howard the Duck post-Steve Gerber. But yeah, I I think it's a weirder story that two of them have been cancelled and two of them are staying than it would be if they were all just cancelled because everything was being brought under the new Kevin Feige banner. I sort of expect neither of those other two to happen either. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, originally the plan is so they're going to do these four shows that are all like comedic in tone and then unite them in a crossover called The Offenders, oh, which maybe gives you a sense of the brand of humor they were aiming for. Mm. <laughs> I can't say I'm sad to not see that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, just from the wow. title alone. R.I.P. Uh, Howard the Duck and yeah. Dazzler. It's a shame we will we won't get to an, at any point in the future do a, a second Howard the Duck related episode. So. <laughs> that is a podcast I listen to, and I have never seen Howard the Duck. But I did listen to your <laughs> podcast on it. That's probably wise. I think yeah. we, we might get similar with Superman Four. Actually, <laughs> if uh, if anyone hasn't seen it, I think it's it's something you might want to save yourselves from. So those things have been cancelled to, from the sound of it, not a huge amount of wailing and gnashing of teeth, at least from this end. But something that hasn't been cancelled, something that in fact that has been greenlit, possibly a bit later than we might have expected, Captain Marvel 2. So Billy Batson will be returning. (laughs) Not sure if Black Adam's going to be in this one or not. uh... Ha ha ha. Sounds like you're a regular old offender over there. (laughs) She's absolutely rinsed you there, Seb. Captain Marvel 2. Are you guys... Oh, I always feel like... I don't know. I never get excited about these announcements just because wh- when I look at the dates, it's like impossible for my mind to imagine 20... 20- I mean, and, and obviously this is always the case, right? Like you're in 2015 and the idea of 2020 seems impossible and now we're here and it's fine. But I'm like, yeah. 2022? I, I can't even fathom how long from now that is. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, also... Yeah. These announcements tend to bear not a huge amount of resemblance to what actually happened, or at least in Mm -hmm. enough cases. Like, you announced Doctor Strange 2 with Scott Derrickson. There's a reason to get excited. Six months later, it's off and something else is happening. Mm. You know, until the film is in front of us, or at least until a trailer is in front of us, it's hard to really get invested. Mm. It's also hard because you just kind of assume that these things are happening. Like for me, at least, my perspective is usually like, okay, we're going to get a Black Panther 2. We're going to get a Captain Mm. Marvel 2. I'm super excited to see them when they're here. But the announcement doesn't necessarily make it feel more real than they already sort of felt to me. Mm. Well, this this one is interesting because I think it's, I don't know if it's, it's not one where Marvel have said, this is the announcement. You know, it's not like putting the title on a board with a date underneath Mm -hmm. it. This one is more actually, it's sort of the confirmation that it's happening is basically because they have either hired or on the verge of hiring a writer, which is Megan McDonnell, who's apparently on the WandaVision writing staff. And it seems like the link there is that because WandaVision is going to have the grown up Monica Rambeau in it. That obviously, you know, that that will, I guess, likely be our bridge to a present day set Captain Marvel two. Uh, well, I say present day, five years in the future, isn't it? <laughs> are we? Are, do you think are they, they going to let reality catch up, or is it just going to permanently be five years ahead now? No, I think they'll let it catch up. Yeah, but yeah, so it's happening. We don't know a lot else about it because, as I say, it isn't even actually, you know. It's got a nebulous future release date that will invariably change, as these things usually do. It doesn't. It isn't even at that stage yet. As you say, James, even though it, you know, even if it does have a writer now, that might not be the same writer that it'll have when it actually comes out. But I think this is a. This has the feel of a. This is part of the strategy. But then again, so you know, Doctor Strange, you know, supposed to tie into One Division as well. There is a lot riding on One Division. <laughs> My theory about Doctor Strange is that they wanted to tie it more closely than Scott Derrickson wanted, and that's why he mm. walked off. Possibly, but yeah. Who knows? I mean, the thing that's interesting for me about this announcement is that it's not the same team as the first one. Yeah. Right, and there's mm. no director attached. It was it was Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck who co wrote yeah. and directed the first. And now we have this new writer, Megan McDonald, and it looks like they're still searching for a director. The other thing, too, and I think you kind of hinted at this, Seb, but that they're 
people are sort of taking this assumption that the news story will be set in the present day as opposed to in the 90s, which I guess would make sense, but is sort of a big change in a way. Mm. Like, it's interesting to think that all that sort of setup from the first movie will just be gone in a way, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of adventures, allegedly, that have not been shown, which, I mean, you could you could start a film in there, but I sort of think with the momentum of the Marvel Universe being what it is, it does make sense to tell another story and maybe refer to like, oh, in that 20-year period where we didn't see her, here's a mm-hmm. bunch of other stuff that happened. Yeah. I mean, you have to assume Jude Law survived the last film, right? He's going to come yeah. back in some form, you imagine. Right, and do they all just not age? Well, she hasn't, so... We know she doesn't age, right? But does will Jude Law be 30 years older? Maybe. Or does he not age? Does their, does their tech work in the opposite direction? Their CGI? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for Cap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> My expectation would be that if they were to bring him back, no, it would just be that because he's that alien species, they don't age the same way. Mm-hmm. I think, actually, I mean, I would say probably the only bit of setup. I mean, because it's a bit like your your Captain America to Winter Soldier jump. It's like sure. most of the stuff was either kind of boxed off already, or it was prequel versions of characters that we could see in a different form later. So, you know, Coulson and Fury, it's not like at this point we desperately need the story of the younger versions of them to be filled out much further. I think probably the only outstanding thread that I think there'd be a lot of people who'd want to see is a bit more of Maria Rambo obviously the idea seems to be that we'll you know we'll meet an older version of monica will her mother be in there in some way as well uh as i say you know i think there are people who want to see that i think the maria thing is that's maybe what's throwing me the most because i feel like you know captain america that first movie sets up like this is a tragic lost love story Mm. whereas i feel like captain marvel it sets up like this is the most important friendship relationship in her life and it like anchors her so it'll be weird to pick up another movie and it's like oh yeah now her best friend is old and her new best friend is essentially like her grown-up you know niece basically Mm. like it's it's an interesting i think it's a weirder dynamic than maybe the world is gonna get credit for at the moment (laughs) like it's almost like a time travel premise baked into this and it'll be curious to see how they handle that i mean the fact that the fact that it's gonna gonna have different writers doesn't give me a huge amount of confidence that they're gonna pay it that much attention Mm-hmm. No. It's going to be a bit Winter Soldier and Captain America, where that's a big deal in the first movie, and then in subsequent movies, he is. Yeah. Uh, I do think that I really liked Brie Larson in Endgame, her sort of mm. more confident version there. And I know that's a weird situation because she filmed that before she'd like found the character <laughs> in Captain Marvel itself. So it's a, you know, who knows what the future will hold. But I do think she locked into a cool dynamic in that performance. So that is exciting to see. That, yeah, definitely. that you know version of the character going forward guarantee there will be avengers cameos in this movie <laughs> maybe she'll continue that argumentative relationship with um brody <laughs> i was literally about to say there's a good excuse to bring war machine back <laughs> i mean I, I mean actually genuinely if you if you wanted to get Rhodey into another film somewhere now that he can't be in iron man films that does kind of feel the logical place i'm not sure why it feels the logical pl- uh, military background yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, yeah yeah they have a bit, bit of general ross in there as well <laughs> tie those things together yeah why is he in everything can i just say too much general ross (laughs) it's weird that they doubled down on the movie a character from the movie they most want to ignore like i don't understand this choice and then they're like we that movie doesn't exist but this character will be in every other film that we make 
Thank you for getting in a, a, a double down in our in our anniversary. Oh, yeah, episode, no problem. Along with me having done the Daredevil Deadpool thing. <laughs> I just have to be misanthropic and hate <laughs> Christopher Nolan, yeah. So yeah, what do you think about the trailer for Christopher Nolan's film that looks like it's a rip-off of the backwards, the Red Dwarf as episode? If, as if I would watch it. <laughs> there you go. Right, well, let's move on to one more piece of news, something that I think isn't a Christopher Nolan film, unless there's going to be a surprise turn in a bit of news. (laughs) But it looks like the movie version of Ex Machina, the Brian K. Vaughan and Tony Harris series uh, from the late 2000s, is getting closer to reality because it has signed on Oscar Isaac to both produce and star in it. It's also had a change of title because there's already a film called Ex Machina, which did come out after the comic had started. And stars Oscar Isaac. Also stars (laughs) Oscar Isaac. How bizarre. They're changing the title to The Great Machine, which I think is a much better title than Ex Machina. I've never liked Ex Machina as a title anyway, not least because you never quite know whether to say... If you're not saying the full phrase, Deus Ex Machina, should you say Ex Machina or Ex Machina? It just... I mean, I know it is Ex Machina, but it's an awkward sounding phrase. I'm going to stop saying it now. The Great Machine (laughs) is his superhero name in the story. And I think it works better for what the story is about because it refers to the political machine that he becomes a part of. And yeah, I just think it's a, I think it's, a, I think it's a neat sounding title. Do either of you? I mean, James, I don't know if you've read this, Caroline. I'm going to assume, and apologies if this is an incorrect assumption, that you don't know anything about this comic. That's an entire unless you've written about <laughs> the, the film news or anything. But uh, James, did you have you ever actually read it? I once accidentally bought an issue, and I didn't even read that. So. <laughs> I know you've been at a Bristol Comics Expo with me, where Brian K. Vaughan was there, and I got him to sign uh, a volume of it. I, I know you were at that one with me, but yeah, it's obviously not Brian K. Vaughan's most famous comic now because. Uh, saga and even before that i suppose why the last man as well Uh, but it is one of the series where he really honed his ability to give you last pages of issues that were sort of big and jaw-dropping and to kill off characters that you care about part way through like when when brian k vaughan kind of started to do his his joss weedening this is one of the series where he really learned how to do it the setup is that if you if you don't know anything about it at all uh, it's about a guy called mitchell hundred who was a civil engineer who got superpowers when a weird device uh, on a bridge exploded i think it was the brooklyn bridge even exploded in his face and gave him the ability to talk to machines so he can basically communicate with and control. <laughs> I can talk to machines. <laughs> That's <laughs> this not was in, power. This was in 2004, James. Voice recognition was not at the level that no, it is now. Again, I could talk to machines my entire life. <laughs> There's not a power. Well, he gets the power to to interact with and control machinery, any there kind of machinery. <laughs> right. And this also means that he sort of has increased sort of like technical ability and understanding. So along with his sidekick, a guy called Kremlin, he builds a backpack, jetpack thing and flies around New York as a superhero for a little while. A superhero called The Great Machine. He then retires from being a superhero to run for office. He, I can't, don't, I can't remember if he could, if he becomes mayor before or after nine eleven. I think what happens is he comes out of retirement on nine eleven. The big spoilers, but the big twist at the very end of the first issue, and this was this had probably had more impact in two thousand and four than it would now. But the big twist is that he saved one of the towers on nine eleven. Like he could, he didn't stop the first plane, but he did stop the second plane. So on the wave of that, I think he gets elected as mayor of New York and the whole series is about his term 
them as mayor of New York, basically. And takes a you know lot of kind of political twists and turns. It's it's really really heavily rooted, as you can imagine, in Bush era politics, to the extent that again the kind of the big twist in the final issue, which I won't spoil, but it's kind of a it's more of a character twist than like a plot twist, but it's to do with his kind of political alliances. Looking at it in the year 2020 and everything that's happened in the past decade, it's got a very different tone than it had in 2010. Um, it's, it's all I'm going to say. What's the the like the vibe that you anticipate this movie having? Like, will it feel far more grown up than the MCU's? Oh yeah, I mean, so so the comic is very uh, the comic is a grown up comic. It's very kind. Of, it's often it's often quite grisly. It's very mm-hmm. kind of as I say, politically rooted. It sort of deals with a lot of uh, kind of then current issues. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of heavily about post Iraq War, Islamophobia, and that kind of thing. A lot of stuff about political corruption and scandal. There's a running thing in the series where there's kind of a running open question as to whether or not Hundred is gay, and the comic never actually confirms it one way or the other, but it's kind of a plot point in terms of his political aspirations and, and how people kind of are with him and that kind of thing. Um, similarly, it's, it is quite open, uh, um, the question of, like, I think you have certain... But when you kind of meet him early on and the fact that he's a superhero and stuff, you have certain assumptions about his politics and what his kind of party allegiances are, which, again, I think kind of gets subverted in some cases as it goes on. Like, he, he ends up having surprising stances on some things and, it, like, you know, sometimes... Basically, sometimes he's quite liberal and sometimes he's quite conservative. And But, yeah, no, it's not a... You know, it's it's not a kind of slam bang action fun. fun sort of thing it's a it's a very serious and often quite dark is there anything you would compare it to tonally that exists as a film like is it like the nolan batman films is it like the watchman movie is it or does it feel like its own thing like this is not going to be a familiar type of property um that's an interesting question i mean I, I think it is probably i think i would probably put it somewhere between those two things that mm-hmm. you mentioned uh like you know i think a little bit more a little bit more kind of adult than the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises, but you know it's not as as Gonzo as a Watchmen film. You know, it's sort of it's not as well. It does get quite over the top at times, actually, with some of the violence and stuff. You know, as I say, it, it is kind of very firmly an adult comic. There's a lot of kind of violence and swearing and stuff, but I think, as I say, it's more that kind of thematically, it's it's quite based around politics but what i think is interesting is that it's it's so about that era of politics that making it now and you would assume that it's going to be contemporary to now rather than being a, i think it would be weird to make it like a mid-2000s period piece mm-hmm. um so i feel like it's more likely that it that it will get shifted to the present day and i think that putting oscar isaac given his ethnic background as a character who is a superhero turned mayor of New York in this era, considering what's going on with the government and people of similar to his ethnic background, I think there's, there's there could be interesting angles to explore taking it as a post-Trump story rather than a post-Bush story. Mm-hmm. But as I say, you know, I, I don't know kind of what route them. I don't think you can take this story and make it not political. But I think you probably have to make it about the politics of the time that you're making it. I, you know, it would have been a very, very different film if they'd made it ten years ago. 
I also think if they made it 10 years ago, Mitchell Hundred would have been Jason Bateman because he really looks like him. But I think Oscar Isaac, as I say, I think is really interesting casting for this. It's one of those where like you wouldn't have thought it beforehand. And then as soon as someone says it, you're like, ah, I can see that. I can I can see that in a way that I wouldn't have kind of envisaged it before. Does the source material's connection to 9-11 feel like that would have to be something you would include in it? Or, it, or would this adaptation skip over that? I feel like the adaptation would skip over it because, as I say, I think it's... I think it's too long ago now to be relevant to the character if you were setting it in 2020. Yeah. I think you'd have to be setting it in 2004 onwards for mm-hmm. yeah. So and as I say I think the, the 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 presidential election that happens at the very end of it is as I say you I don't think you would end a story the way that it that it ends in the comic. I have two completely tangential things to add. <laughs> One is that Ex Machina, the Alex Garland movie that mm-hmm. Oscar Isaac was already in, is a fantastic film. One of my favorite movies from the last decade. Everyone should watch it. I feel like people that enjoy this podcast and like comic booky stuff would really like it. Two, I literally, as we were talking, just remembered that Oscar Isaac is in X Men Apocalypse and that he's already <laughs> been in a comic book adaptation. And I just love that the entire world has decided to collectively. Uh, ignore the fact that that happened. I think we talked about that on the Adams Family episode as well when we were talking about because obviously with him being the voice of Gomez in the new film and yeah just how it's really easy to forget that he had that role because it just bore no resemblance mm-hmm. to anything you'd expect him to do when he's in a yeah. film so I don't own X-Men Apocalypse on DVD it's probably the only one of the few comic book films I don't own I was in where was it I was in CEX yesterday and I saw it for two quid and I was like uh no no i'll wait i'll wait until i actually want to rewatch it which will be never yeah probably yeah because we, we've already done it it's only days of future past that we've got left on yep. here actually just looking i'm just just looking at the summary of the um of x back into the comic and actually yeah the, the, even though the comic was 2004 to 2010 the comic is set it's 2002 through to 2005 so it is really it's it is that kind of that first term post 911 mm-hmm. uh bush yeah oh, i've just been reminded as well of the the the, the issue that the grant the grant morrison ish, issue that they did of it which is issue 40 of the series which is that there's an issue where brian k vaughan and tony harris appear as themselves meeting mitchell hundred to discuss doing a comic book about his time as a superhero um but they don't get the job garth ennis and jim lee get the job <laughs> that's funny yeah it was, it was a good issue. Okay, so that was, I think, all of the, the news and everything that we've got to cover. So I think we, we can't put it off any longer. We have to start talking about Sidney J. Fury's 1987 masterpiece, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. But before that, we'll listen to... I don't even know if there was a proper trailer for this. It'll either be a trailer or it might be a clip of just how weird and bizarre this film is. And we'll be back after this. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The greatest hope against the threat of nuclear war is Superman. I'm going to do what our governments have been unwilling or unable to do. Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. The greatest threat to Superman is Lex Luthor. Smarter than I thought. We can make the world safe for war profits. He's created the ultimate weapon to annihilate the Man of Steel. You risk worldwide nuclear war for your own personal financial gain. Nobody wants war. I just want to keep the threat alive. Dude of Steel, where are you gonna get it? You know you're a workaholic. Why don't you stop and smell the roses, huh? Superman 4, Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Jackie Cooper, John Cryer, with Mariel Hemingway and Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. Superman 4, his most important adventure, the quest for peace. Okay, so, Superman 4. Where's best to start with this? Can I start can I start with with a hot take? Go on. I I don't think this film is terrible. <laughs> I actually no. kind of enjoyed watching it. That's and... not the same thing as it not being terrible though, is it? Because I mean it is a like objectively it's a te- that doesn't mean it's not a fun film. But Here okay, so having j- the most recent live action part of this franchise I've watched is Supergirl. So I think yeah. that that really set the bar <laughs> low. <laughs> yeah. So coming back into this world I was like, wow, this is like a great movie. But I okay, so I do think like if I were to go to a movie theater and see this film, I would be very disappointed and I would have felt yeah. like my money was not well spent. But I actually think if you took this movie you kind of chopped it up and re-edited it. It could make like a really nice four episode run of a Saturday morning kid show. Like I think there's (laughs) nice ideas, some enjoyably goofy stuff. I really, really like this world. And I think that there are like pieces in here that are really interesting and like actually really compelling and thoughtful. They're just not really packaged cohesively. or successfully but my i don't know i feel very like kindly towards this movie Mm. i had a i i like had a warm and cozy time watching it as messy as it is i mean i i would definitely agree with that in the sense of like i am i am fascinated by this film i i have a sort of ongoing probably long term it's going to take me absolutely ages to actually do but a kind of side project thing that involved that has involved me doing quite a lot of research into this film watching it quite a lot learning as much as I can about the circumstances of why and how it turned out the way that it did. And 
you know, and this goes all the way back to I I know I would have along with Superman three. I think I would have watched this one and Superman three as a kid far more than I saw the first two films. You know, because I remember as a kid, I would have sat there in school and done drawings of Nuclear Man. I would have thought Nuclear Man was like the coolest thing. And I think I think what you say is right in terms of actually, yeah. If if this was if this was actually just intending to be silly nonsense aimed at kids. It does that really well. I definitely think that its heart is in the right place, which is something mm-hmm. that I think you can't always say yeah. about some of the the kind of worst examples of these. But I mean, the, the whole thing about its heart being in the right place, I think, is part of the really interesting circumstances that surround how this film got to be this way and how we got to this film like nine years, only nine years after Superman 1978. You know, that that would be like if the MCU started with Iron Man and finished <laughs> with the 1990 Captain America. <laughs> you know? If, if we'd had the 1990 Captain America like two or three years ago, that's like the same window. Yeah, I think that's off. probably the um, most interesting thing is that it doesn't take long for these films to go from like proper serious like adult movies to mm. just sort of sub saturday morning tv stuff yeah i mean and and you know the, as i say the, the the story of how this happened i mean we won't get into kind of all of the stuff that's kind of behind the scenes while the film was kind of being made but just the sort just to kind of cover the build up to how we got here for, for those who don't know which is obviously you've got superman 78 filmed simultaneously with part two by Richard Donner. And you've got Superman 78, which is this strong, you know, this film with like a strong identity. And it's a, uh, you know, well, we don't need to go into all of the ways in which Superman 78 is one of the best superhero films, but it's it's clear and cohesive and, and he's anchored by great performances and is well-directed and all of that. But you've got the fallout between Warner Brothers and Richard Donner, which means that Richard Donner leaves partway through production of what would have been Superman 2 and is replaced by Richard Lester. And one of the things that Richard Lester is brought in to do specifically is to lighten up the tone. So you end up with Superman 2, which, you know, again, we've talked about it in detail, but while it has people who think that it's the best of the Superman films, I think comes off as a mess and the two tones clash badly. And I think it's generally the lighter stuff that causes a problem. You then go on to Superman 3, which, because of the experiences of what happened with Richard Donner being fired from Superman 2, you've lost half of your core cast because Margot Kidder and Gene Hackman don't want to be anywhere near it. (laughs) So Superman 3 has to solve that problem by bringing in a new Lex Luthor and a new Lois Lane in the shape of um, uh, Robert Vaughn's, I can't even remember his character's name, um, and Lana Lang. Um, Now, again, Superman 3, I I kind of have a lot of fun with that film, and I think there's there's lots of ways in which I really enjoy it, and in some ways I think it's better than it's given credit for. But there's no denying that it's a mess and it was a flop. So the Sulkins, who are the producers of the Superman film series at that point, have to regroup. They have to regroup in the knowledge that I think at this point they've basically lost Christopher Reeve because after the experience of doing Superman 3 and Superman 3 being a flop, Christopher Reeve doesn't want to be associated with the films anymore. Um, so all they've really got left is an Eto Tool and Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen. Um, so they parlay Jimmy Olsen into a different film entirely. They change direction. They try and go with Supergirl. They try and effectively relaunch the franchise with Supergirl in 1984. But as we know from having covered it, uh, that film is an absolute disaster and is even more of a flop than Superman 3. And that's the point at which the Sulkins basically do something completely crazy, which is that they sell 
the rights to make Superman films because at this point Warner Brothers don't own those rights lock, stock and barrel. So they sell those rights to Golan and Globus, who are the owners of Canon Films, a once proud studio who basically, by the point at which Menahem Golan and uh, Yoram Globus had taken them over, are basically known throughout the 80s for making the Death Wish sequels and a load of bad Chuck Norris (laughs) B-movies. Somehow, this film company, at the same time, ends up with the rights to make a Superman film and Masters of the Universe, the He-Man movie. And they they basically sort of see these two franchises as their way into becoming a big, proper, serious film studio, but they have no money. So they get Superman 4 going. They manage to tempt back Christopher Reeve, which is the main thing that they need to do to actually, you know, successfully relaunch Superman in the 80s. It's not at a point where it's far enough away from the previous films where you can recast. So they persuade Christopher Reeve by promising him two things. One is that he'll get to effectively write the plot of the film so they'll base the film around whatever he wants it to be about and two they'll fund production of a a film project of his choice which is street smart which is the film that won morgan freeman his first oscar and so i think street smart was a significantly more successful project than superman 4 was it was an oscar winner oscar nomination it was one or the other anyway now christopher reeve is a massive like liberal bleeding heart lefty you know, who's who's dedicated to a wide range of liberal causes, one of which is that he's very, very anti-nuclear weapons. So he tells them that he wants to make a movie that's about Superman trying to bring about world peace by getting rid of nuclear weapons. So they start to produce the film on this basis. They actually, like, to their credit, they do what Superman 3 couldn't do, and they persuade Gene Hackman and Margot Kidder to come back, although based on the film we got whether that was a good um, <laughs> a good decision is maybe open to interpretation they're certainly in it whether whether they psychologically turned up is a different yeah. question i mean I, w- I was gonna say they must have driven a dump truck full of money up to gene hackman's house but i don't think they had a dump truck of mo- full of money <laughs> and that's the big thing is that so they so they plan this film that they, they genuinely intend is gonna be you know a big kind of full-blown superman epic that's gonna restart the franchise and they give it a 40 million dollar budget and they script and cast and everything else based on having that budget and then like they basically run out of money i think partly because they've spent too much of it on masters of the universe and partly just because i don't think they were very good businessmen and they end up just before starting shooting having to slash the film's budget from 40 million dollars to 17 million dollars and that's why you end up with a superman film that is shot in milton Keynes and has no special effects to speak of (laughs) oh and then of course as well having made the film and having made a film that's an hour and a half long and which has various plot strands including the stuff with the nuclear missiles the stuff with clark's family farm being sold and all of the stuff with nuclear man and with two versions of nuclear man they do a test screening in which it goes down like a lead balloon and they cut 35 minutes out of the film rendering a film that was already fairly incompetent looking into being a film that is incomprehensible and incompetent looking because they cut out half of the plot in the material that they cut out <laughs> of the film. And that is how we end up with Superman 4. But despite all of that, yeah, I can't bring myself to in any way hate this film or to think that, the, that there is kind of bad intention behind this film or that it was, 
you know, maybe maybe for the production company, it was done, obviously it was done to make money. But I don't think anyone involved on the creative side of this film was like, oh, we just want to make a quick book. Like Sidney J. Fury was a respected director who had made good films. Christopher Reeve, like he believed in what this film was trying to do. And he, he still puts his heart into it. <laughs> and in, in fairness to him, right, when I first saw this film, I would have been, you know, probably not even 10. Yeah. I definitely learned about nuclear weapons from this film. <laughs> so it, it did its job in that regard. Like, yeah. You know. And it's kind of an interesting approach. It is not as simplistic an approach as you might think for a movie like this to take oh, definitely, you know like yeah. there's a I mean, sense of <laughs> I think it I think it ends up being very simplistic in how I think it makes a really interesting I think it's about a really interesting premise which is okay what would happen if superman did this I think it really badly fumbles what happens when he does mm-hmm. I think I think that's when it becomes sim- I think it raises an interesting question that's not simplistic but I think it then answers it quite simplistically <laughs> I just think that there's there's ideas in here. And again, you know, if I had watched Superman 2 right before this, I'm sure I would be more down on this movie. But coming from the point of view of having just watched Supergirl, <laughs> the movie, um, I just feel like there's interesting ideas and in this film and ideas that remain relevant, including to the point where some of the ideas in this film are literally plot points on this current season of Supergirl. So there's stuff in here, particularly about um, journalism as an industry and the way it can be sold out Mm. that is as timely as it has ever been. Uh, I don't know. I just really... I had a lot of affection for the... Maybe I just really love Christopher... I think I just really like <laughs> Superman. And it, t- it it was not until relatively recently in my life that I realized that. So I still get this like high whenever there's like a good Superman or Supergirl story. Because it's like this joy of realizing that this thing I always thought was boring is actually like <laughs> really cool and interesting. And I think Superman 4 has really cool and interesting ideas, even if... It also then has fight scenes that go on forever and are so weird and boring and you sort of just like go into a trance while they're happening. At least in addition to that, it has like interesting ideas about nuclear proliferation and like journalistic integrity. Yeah, I I think you're right, actually. Like, I don't think this is like both this and Supergirl for something like 12% on Rotten Tomatoes I don't think this is anywhere near as bad as Supergirl no not even at all like Christopher Reeve is genuinely very funny in this film Mm -hmm. he gives a great performance there are some funny comedic set pieces (laughs) and like you say it's incoherent it's not that incoherent. Parts of it are full-on incoherent (laughs) but yeah but it helps that it's mostly just like episodic yeah. random scenes so you're sort of like okay i understand this scene but do they all add up to something yeah i think i think on a scene by scene basis if if you assume that you're not supposed to know why a particular scene is happening at a given time <laughs> then when you're in that scene it's okay i mean i actually I genuinely, one of the one of the ways that i i kind of thought to characterize this film was that there are times when it really feels like it's been written by a load of different people and what's happened is each scene has been written by a new person but they've only been allowed to see like one random scene from earlier in the script and they (laughs) haven't been allowed to see the rest of the script so they just have to pick up little bits of detail from the previous bit that they were allowed to see. But even then it's not like Supergirl turns up at a school puts on a uniform and is suddenly enrolled (laughs) incoherent right? Uh, Yeah that is that is just (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, let's flat out bizarre. I don't, well, let, let's talk through it, and because I think we, I think for this one, we we talked about. I think it's 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 worth actually just going through this film sequentially, especially yeah. because it's like less than ninety minutes long. So you know, um, but I think as as we go through as well, we can kind of talk about some of the stuff that was supposed to be in it that that ended up getting mm-hmm. cut that maybe makes some more of the stuff make sense. Mm-hmm. But I think it's worth going through sequentially because I think it's worth going through that to sort of try and understand what does and doesn't make sense and where I think there really are kind of I mean my, my, my biggest problems with this film are that there there are just huge narrative gaps in in logic yeah, i have some questions um, <laughs> there, there are as as i kind of alluded to in the in the the intro there are just almost everything that it deals with it's kind it is kind of like it has a child's approach to everything like how basic things work in this film <laughs> are, are like an eight-year-old has kind of seen them and heard about them but isn't actually yeah. an adult so doesn't actually know and i think you can find an example of that in almost every in, in basically scene every in scene yeah yeah, yeah um, I mean, it does end with Superman just moving the moon. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, I mean, all the breathing in space. But let's, you know, let's let's come to that because because there's there's stuff that's just as bad on Earth. And I think I think the biggest thing that lets it down, and maybe it's not an issue for everybody, but like it shouldn't be the case that not having good special effects like makes a film bad because I think a film can can still you know can be cheap and not necessarily have amazing effects. I think the problem is that this film is made as if it has good effects Hmm. and because they're so bad they really it means that the film can't do what it's trying to do it's like if it was if it it was one of those films that knew that it was cheap and so deliberately had cheap special effects that would be fine because you're you know you would you have your will in suspension of disbelief you would put up with the things that you know, you know that your brain is having to kind of fill a gap there. I think with this, it's it's made as if it's a big budget blockbuster with proper flying scenes and stuff. And actually what it's got is one green screenshot of Superman flying towards the camera, yeah. tinted green. And it's just, you know, we have seen these films do this stuff better only a few years previously. So it really comes off badly in that sense. But... Anyway, if we sort of, I mean, one one of those green screen scenes comes like right at the very start in a af- well after we've had the opening credits, which even the writer of this film, uh, Mark Rosenthal, on the commentary on the DVD, um, I think he says at the start like something along the lines of like you can tell from the very first credit that something is very wrong in Metropolis, <laughs> and you've got this sort of this attempt to recreate the the classic opening credits of the first film just done with much cheaper effects of like the text swooping on the screen i remember when we talked about rise of the silver surfer kind of opening and feeling like it's a tv movie and this like very much feels like a tv movie when it starts yeah um it then opens though with a scene which is just a little vignette of a scene which i think is one of the best aside from the fact that it's got that terrible green screen shot of superman flying towards the camera i think it's one of the best things that this film does because it's a scene that has a point that's relevant to the rest of the film and pretty much plays out successfully which is i mean all that happens in it is superman rescues a russian cosmonaut who's like got cut loose and is floating off in space mm-hmm. and superman rescues him and he cracks a little joke because the bloke's been singing and he speaks to him in russian and it really gets across it's christopher reeve like doing his charming smiling thing and it's like you know this is the film where christopher reeve has, has kind of had this you know has brought this we are all one world 
philosophy. This is in 1987, and it's an American film where Superman rescues a Russian and chats to him in Russian. And I think it's a really nice little scene. Yeah, it's lovely. It's a lovely way to start this film. It establishes like Superman's position on Earth and, you know, the extent of his powers and his philosophy. And it does all that without, you know, a bunch of annoying exposition. Like you really just get that from this whole little sequence. I think this is really lovely. Hmm. I mean, (laughs) as much as I liked the little sequence, there are the cracks start to show pretty quickly. Like he's flying around space and his capers all flapping. Yeah. (laughs) And then he puts the guy back in the spaceship and speaks and you're like, you can speak in space. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, that I had. So he's Superman, uh, though. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, he's do it. He's it's quite, quite early on. You're going. Mm, this isn't how <laughs> things work. I mean, I would at least say that at least what this film does is it's consistent with how it presents space. <laughs> and how it presents space is that space Some is like extent. the sky. As if and someone, it's just... <laughs> someone who has not read much about space. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I so my problem, I do have some space problems later. I'm willing to buy that Superman can just do anything in space, right? Like I'm willing to buy somehow he can speak in space because that's part of his powers. It's when we get to a later scene yeah. where a human <laughs> is just floating up there with no space suit. That's the problem. But here it's like the humans are in space suits and Superman's, you know, talking and flying and the breeze and everything. That's fine. I mean, if, if the Russians had seen what happens later in the film, they wouldn't be wearing those spacesuits because they wouldn't know <laughs> they don't need them. <laughs> um, okay, but I also think that this is the perfect scene if it was like a Saturday morning kids show, right? Like this is your opening scene, then you do a little comedy with Clark and then end with a fight scene. Mm. That's like a perfect little episode. Yeah. And I mean, actually, after that, we then go on. I mean, I genuinely think like the first five minutes or so of this film are reasonably solid because we then go on to a scene that if it wasn't for the fact that it has absolutely no relevance to the rest of the film, <laughs> again, would actually, you know, be pretty good, which is that we, we we follow Superman back to Earth. He's back. He's in Smallville. We learn that between films, I mean, I don't think she, she showed up in Superman 3, but um, at some point, his mum has died because she's still alive when he's an adult in Superman 1, but she's she's gone by now. And there's a kind of shady property developer, and you know that he's a shady property developer because he wears a Stetson and he's got a southern accent. And also, he's a property um, developer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that he's a shady property developer because he's a property developer. Yeah. And this was Christopher Reeve's story input, and Christopher Reeve is a massive wet liberal. I mean, that is what most of these films are about, right, is how bad property developers are. Yeah. <laughs> This is true. Lex Luthor is effectively just a property developer. Um, the main thesis of the Superman yeah. franchise. But so you have this whole scene that's about the fact that the Clark's put the farm up for sale because obviously he's not going to run the farm. His mum's gone. But he wants to sell it to a farmer. He wants it to carry on as a farm in, in that tradition. But this property developer wants to knock it down to put a supermarket. So there's the whole thing of, you know, his progress destroying, uh, you know, the American farm belt and, and all of that. And it's like, this feels like it's going to be a nice thematic thing in the film. And it's again, it's a nicely mm-hmm. played scene because again, I think, you know, some of the best stuff in the Superman films is when Christopher Reeve is being kind of, okay, so he's got the glasses and stuff on, you know, he's being sort of, he's still being Metropolis Clark. But I've always said that there's this thing where the real Superman is Smallville Clark. Basically, the re- that's like Superman is a mask, Metropolis Clark Kent is a mask, and Smallville Clark Kent is the real personality and it's a night obviously you know he does have to play up to oh he he can't hit the baseball and you know uh, there's the joke about him having kicked through the crib when he was a baby and and all that but it's like 
I think again, it's a it's a nicely done little scene. It's a scene that doesn't suffer from budget issues. It's a scene where actually they've made a random bit of English countryside actually look like America. So you know, well done there. <laughs> um, it's just that nothing that ha- other than the fact that what we then see is him going into the barn and he does a picks up a bit of his Kryptonian shit. Nothing else that happens in that scene is in any way relevant to anything else that happens in the rest of the film. And there must have been later planned scenes that were cut here that sort of in some way resolved that plot because otherwise it's not even like it really thematically adds anything it's just uh it just feels like we're doing the stuff that the superman films did so here's a bit where he's in smallville and here's a bit where like when he kicked that football into space in the first film here's a bit where he hits a baseball into space in the the second film in the fourth film here's what i'll give it credit for setting up so i think a lot of this movie the theme is like what is superman's role on earth right like he's trying to decide if he wants to step in he's sort of been told his like kryptonian values are like non-interventionist so don't step in you know with all this nuclear war that's that's building up the potential for that and so i think that this is a scene that like grounds him in his past shows that in a way like elements of his past are slipping away, like he sort of let go of his childhood Mm. and the connection to the Kryptonian ship. It's sort of like reminding him of his weird position as like a member of Earth, but not a member of the Earth. I think it is. I agree that overall it feels really like random and not connected. But I think on a character basis, there's enough to sort of get us in the mindset of like, this is like a transitional period for Clark personally and then also like in his role as superman and i think like you can kind of i don't know in a very vague way feel it influencing that a little bit (laughs) you've got me fully convinced to be honest i'm like yeah you're right (laughs) i think i just think again because i just i i review supergirl so i just am always thinking about the super family (laughs) and like their connection to earth and their connection to krypton and i think that that is what i don't know that's such an interesting part of the Superman like mythos to me. So that's sort of where like in setting up the fact that his, you know, both of his parents are dead and he's moving on away from, you know, his, his childhood. It does sort of put him in a mindset of, well, and now I'm an adult and I'm on my own, you know, what's next for me? What's, what's the legacy that I'm going to leave on this planet? Right. And it's like, because you can maybe say when his parents were alive, like they were such a connection to his like humanity is like adopted humanity. But now that they're gone, mm-hmm. And he's not like, you know, he we've sort of like Superman 2 sort of took a relationship with Lois off the table. So it's sort of like, will he connect? Will he remain connected to humanity and own his place on Earth? Or will he sort of embrace like I'm a, an alien that will always be alone? And I feel like that sort of like ties into how he wants to handle this impending nuclear yeah, crisis. And will he do what he was told by the hologram and go to another planet? Mm-hmm. Sort of casually well, checks I mean... in the idea oh, there are tons of other planets out there. You can just go to yeah. one planet. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well... Yeah, Kryptonians are awesome. We'll get into like, Kryptonian nice. stuff in a bit more detail. Because I mean, I think that I think already kind of in that opening, in that scene, having had that stuff outside the barn, when he goes into the barn, it's where the film really starts to already lose it. Because like, you just have this bizarre thing of, so... We've we've already had this thing of like the the Kryptonian sort of the recordings slash AI slash whatever it is of Marlon Brando and Susanna York um, are stored in these crystals. But like we did the crystal thing, he took the crystal from his ship and he made the Fortress of Solitude with it. And like all of a sudden, back in back in Smallville, his ship is there 
and this one special crystal that he's never picked up before, he picks up and a recorded Susanna York voice who, you know, they, fair play to them. They Obviously, they couldn't get Brando back, but like Superman 3, they managed to get Susanna York back instead. And this recording kind of acts like it's the first time he's hearing about these recording crystals, mm-hmm. <laughs> like because it's about, oh, you're just about to arrive on Earth. So it's just really, but it's obviously, you know, it's their way of setting up that he's going to go to the fortress and and talk to the Kryptonians, these kind of random Kryptonian dudes later on. But it's just, it it just feels really kind of awkward and and fumbled, really. I don't, I don't yeah. really know what that bit's doing there. Why is he only just discovering something that he must have seen lots of times in his adult life? Yeah, I, I totally understand what you mean about just like <laughs> things happening and feeling so random, particularly so the, the, he gets this last crystal, which we're vaguely told, like, you can use this once, mm. it can do something, and then you'll never have access to this again. I mean, but so. that was literally in, I mean, it was some stuff that got cut from right. Superman 2, but that was in Superman 2. The whole thing with Superman 2 was like how he gets his powers, how originally in the Donner Cut, how he gets his powers back in Superman 2 is that he uses like the special crystal that's like the, the it's the one that powers everything and he has to drain that of its power and the trade-off is he has to lose access to being able to talk to Jor-El through the crystals ever again. It's a really like, it's it's baffling that it got cut from Superman 2 because it's like in the, the version of Superman 2 that we got, he just gets his powers back with, like, no penalty, whereas mm-hmm. in the original cut, he loses the fortress and he loses Jor-El. So it's weird that they've picked that up again, this idea of this one special crystal, because it was the one special crystal was the green crystal that he threw to make the fortress in the first place. This is just a similar crystal. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> it's but just there a backup are weird crystal. things. It's like... He takes the crystal and then the spaceship just disappears. Yeah. And you're like, well, that, that rule seems <laughs> They forgot very to put that strange. effect in. <laughs> so there are like weird logistical concerns. But I do get the sense. This to me, this scene establishes to me the sense that this in some ways is going to be like the last Superman movie. And maybe that's just hindsight. Like we know mm. that it is. But I don't know. It's setting up something of like he's saying goodbye to his past. He's got this one last connection to Krypton. I'm like thematically sort of sort of going with mm. it and mostly willing to ignore like the disappearing spaceship and <laughs> yeah. whatever else you know we happen to get but then he gets to metropolis or i should say he gets to new york because <laughs> the film really doesn't bother to pretend that metropolis isn't new york and we get a scene on the london underground that oh god <laughs> i mean i know like we're massive tube nerds it's so weird to <laughs> see someone me. going down some new york tube steps and turning up in what i looked up later is the disused old witch station yeah it's the the old witch which used to be a branch of the piccadilly line and like if you ever see like deep level tube station stuff shot in a film it was probably done at old witch yeah I mean, they, you know, they have bothered to dress it up and to, you know, to make it look like it's Metropolis. I guess you just have to buy that Metropolis has a London style <laughs> trains. And yeah, and, and I can buy that. Um, or at least I yeah. could. Yeah, if I, I, no, that's if fine. I mean, that's, yeah, the, the, fact, the, fact that, <laughs> the fact that it looks like the tube is not the issue. It's like, you know, we're, we're living in a world where you have Thornington Crescent or where in which one is it? Is it Skyfall? the district and circle line are deep level trains so you know <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that what i'm less fine with is <laughs> is the idea that a train could possibly crash if if a driver has a heart attack because like pretty fundamentally like trains have a pretty fundamental system that's built in to stop that exact thing from happening but apparently in superman's world if anything happens to the driver the train will accelerate i think i thought he like fell over onto 
Yeah, but he's a button. But even if he fell onto a button, the dead man switch. The whole point is that every single train, <laughs> hence the name, is driven. Okay, but you have to have some sort of conflict. You have to, <laughs> he's got to save the day somehow. My problem with this scene is that this is where you really feel like, oh yeah, this is just a cheap knockoff yeah. of those other movies because he's literally. Saving Lois and yeah. delivering a line about this is the safest oh way the to line travel. about the but safest way to travel like, <laughs> we can't afford an airplane so we're gonna do it on like a cheap little you know subway yeah. set so it does again if this were the opening scene of a Saturday kids cartoon it's fine but yeah. if you're going to a movie to see like a big budget Superman movie it's like yeah okay this is clearly a cheap knockoff of what we've seen before because <laughs> you have that same green screen shot of him flying through the tunnel you have some bizarre shots where all of a sudden there's like a side on view of him flying through and he becomes tiny and it's just like they're just like the proportions <laughs> are just wrong you've got the poster in the background that says New York on it there's just all these like and that's weird to me just in and of itself because it's like well you've gone to the trouble of dressing up this station so so it's not like you just it's not like they filmed it in a New York subway and they forgot to cover up a poster that gave away that they were in New York. <laughs> you've actually dressed they were in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've you've dressed a London station to look like New York, not Metropolis. Anyway, it's a small detail. It shouldn't really matter. But it is just like I think that sequence is where if you'd spent the first couple of scenes going Okay, you know, I can I can see what this is doing. This isn't too bad. I th- I think I think the the subway scene is where you'd be starting to sort of slightly cringe and be mm-hmm. okay. This this is not a successful. There's no the action is like just non-existent. It's just a fast train and then Superman stands in front of it on the tracks and cuts the power. Which again, like somebody else couldn't have just cut the power if that was how you stopped the train um it's and you've got lois just like speaking french just like again it's like that was in the previous she went to france in one of the previous films and now she's going to france again oh is that so what she's that learning was? french and randomly talking french to people oh yeah there's a throwaway line in like the next scene where she's like oh is my trip to paris being cancelled and it's like okay mm-hmm. so you were gonna go to paris after you nearly died in a nuclear explosion with richard griffiths in the second film um but yeah so yeah, it's a. This is their big action set piece to open the film, and it just like utterly fails as an action set piece. Yeah, but yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's not good. I don't think it's like terrible, but mm. it's definitely not impressive. Yeah, I, I think it is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> then we get to the Daily Planet. And we get to the introduction of our kind of two new characters who have been sort of specifically created for this film. They they don't have any connection to the comics. Um, although I'm I'm really kind of I'm fascinated again by sort of who they've got cast wise here, which is so you so Clark returns to the Daily Planet and is told that the planet has been taken over by a Rupert Murdoch esque, like a really thinly veiled Rupert Murdoch esque tabloid owner called david warfield who is basically going to reinvent the daily planet to turn it into a sleazy down market tabloid like all of his other newspapers because it was massively failing and so he was able to buy it cheaply Uh, and he's there with his daughter Lacey warfield who is bizarrely going to be clark's love interest for this film and yeah like so david warfield is played by sam wanamaker father of Zoe Wanamaker, if you don't know who Sam Wanamaker is, an American actor who I love how this film is full of American actors living in Britain because it was shot in Britain but they <laughs> needed Americans. So like if you, if you were, you've got, later on you've got Matt McDonald and you've got William Hootkins you've got all these like American actors. But Sam Wanamaker was really interesting because he'd gone to, he'd left the US and gone to the UK to work and then 
because he was a communist sympathizer, he didn't go back. Like, basically, all of the McCarthy stuff started to happen, and he was like, oh, shit, I'd better not go back to America. So he just stayed in Britain for pretty much the rest of his life. And do you know what the most important thing, other than being the father of Zoe Wanamaker, that Sam Wanamaker did with his life? Go on. He is responsible for the existence of the Restored Globe Theatre. Oh, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah, he was a big Shakespeare fan. He'd, He'd worked in Stratford quite a lot. And he was annoyed that there was no, like, globe there. The original site, like, just had a plaque. And there were property developers, ironically, uh, who wanted to just, like, build, you know, commercial and housing stuff there. And he fought and fought and fought to actually get a replica of the globe built there. So that's what he's responsible for. So he's almost the complete opposite of the character that he plays in this film. (laughs) Yeah. So I found the storyline so interesting because on Supergirl this season, one of the big storylines is that Catco, where Kara works, was bought out by like this horrible clickbaity thing. And, and now Kara is like having to butt up against, you know, not getting to do real journalism because they're chasing these terrible <laughs> story. I mean, it's like literally this exact same plot. It's like for the Internet age. But I was like, wow, this is interesting how this stuff is so cyclical. And I think it does. Ma- Again, you know, this stuff is not great. But I can see what it's trying to do. It's like, okay, we're, you know, Superman's going to have this dilemma. And now let's give the journalistic side of Clark his own dilemma to butt up mm. against. And uh, yeah, and I, I definitely think there is a, I, I, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting and a fun storyline to do, considering that the films have always been so centered around having the Daily Planet there as this reliable thing that, you know, that Clark and Lois and Jimmy and everyone work for. And, it's always going to be there and and you know the the idea of actually making a story around that and a and a dilemma around that i think again though the issue is that it's just done in such a it's such a two-dimensional way yeah there's a little bit that i just think again is one of the things that really sums up this film which is that you know i think perry white says something on the lines of you know oh, i'm never going to work for the daily planet when it's like this and and lacy says uh you know but daddy's got all of your contracts and he holds up smiling these bits <laughs> of paper bound in red tape and it's like You've got you've got their contracts like bound up like their diplomas. Like what's going on with that? Okay, again, I'm coming from a world where in the Catco storyline on Supergirl, <laughs> they if they decide not to work for this new version of Catco, they're like banned from doing journalism for the rest of their lives because that's how their contracts oh, I mean, are written. <laughs> so I think I'm just used to really giving people slack with these. Maybe sort of maybe they've done lines. that as a deliberate. No, I mean no. Look, the premise of holding someone to a contract that's fair enough. What I'm talking about is the fact that he's literally got the physical objects wrapped up in this ostentatious red tape. Why has he got them in front of him at this meeting that's just about... Because he knew that this was going to be... He likes a good performative prop (laughs) for his meetings. I think the biggest problem with this story, and maybe this is the biggest problem with the movie in general, and you were kind of saying this before, Seth, but it sets up an interesting idea that idea exists and we're sort of like, wow, this is bad. And then at the end, it's just sort of like, and we resolved it. So, Mm. you know, it's like, it would be cool if we watched all of our journalist characters go up against this tabloid mentality, but all they really do is be like, this is bad. And then at the end, they're like, and we kicked you out of power. Don't worry about it anymore. (laughs) So there's not really a thing to take away. This is resolved off screen and someone comes and tells us it's been fixed. Exactly. The the legwork of actually fighting this doesn't <laughs> yeah <occur. laughs> doesn't actually yeah um i mean the i think the other interesting thing here and I, I do think actually this is one of the more interesting threads in the film is we have the character of lacy david warfield's daughter played by mariel hemingway who was most famous for a role which just looks worse with hindsight 
which is that she was the love interest in Manhattan when she was like what sixteen or seventeen. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I mean it's a good film, but yeah, and. I do think I am a little bit discomforted by the fact that, you know, Margot Kidder as Lois, you know, has been deemed to be an acceptable love interest for Christopher Reeve when they make the the first two Superman films. Now, both Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder have got a decade older since making the first one, but they haven't aged at different rates. You know, like they're always four years apart, like Margot Kidder's four years older than Christopher Reeve. But when they get to Superman 4, the fact that they're both a decade older means that as the love interest, they need to cast somebody who is the age that Margot Kidder was when they made the first one. I found this plot extremely confusing because I was watching the whole film going, but Clark loves Lois, doesn't he? Yeah. Apparently he doesn't. <laughs> I think that this is what, okay, I will take your, I do think your point about her being younger is a really good one. When this character came on the screen, her first scene, she's like the sexy evil girl and she's up on her desk with her legs up mm. trying to seduce Clark. And I was, I have seen this movie before, but I literally remember nothing about it. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, where is this? This is going to be horrible. Where is this going? I actually kind of like Lacey as a character. Oh and yeah, I think yeah, with yeah. This, what this film is trying to do, it's like, they're really setting up Lois is the love interest for Superman mm. and Lacey is the love interest for Clark. And so we have like a double date scene where they think yeah. that there's four people there, but Ugh. there's really you know three <laughs> of them there. So I think it's the idea of like Lois just, she's just like, you know, decided Clark is only her friend. She mm. doesn't have romantic feelings for him. And she's like so in love with Superman. Whereas Lacey like can't, doesn't care about Superman at all. It's like hilariously disinterested in, mm. in him, but is so into Clark. And so I didn't necessarily think that this movie was saying Lois wasn't his love interest. It was just like she's his love interest for half of his personality, which is actually kind of very sad and depressing (laughs) from Clark's point of view, that the woman he's clearly in love with only loves him, you know, half the time. But again, we're not really digging into that element of it. He's got a sort of get out clause though, right? (laughs) Which is his extremely disturbing superpower. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Superman 3, obviously by circumstance, because of the fact that that Margot Kidder refused to do it. But I think think what you can say is, in the aftermath of Superman 2, I think the idea that Clark slash Superman has kind of reconciled himself to the fact that he's not going to have this life with Lois... Yeah. Is kind of where they've landed with it. And in Superman 3, what you've got instead is the connection that he makes with Lana instead. And so that Superman 3 already has the feeling that he's kind of moved on from Lois. With this, it is weird because I think on the Clark side of things, it just feels like a continuation of that. And it's almost a kind of it almost shifts into this kind of like big sisterly kind of relationship in in some ways, which I think is actually again, I think I think that's partly indicative of the relationship that Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder had. Like, you know, they mm-hmm. the, by this point, you know, they'd had a kind of a long-standing friendship and actually I think they did have that that kind of vibe that she was almost kind of like, a, a, you know, an older sister and kind of mentor kind of figure to him. I think actually where the film makes a mistake is in trying to keep that, the romance dynamic on the Superman side of it. I think it would be much better if it left Lois just in that friend position with both of them rather than trying to do the romantic comedy angle because it's just there is no way that it makes sense that clark as superman would have decided yes i could still pursue a relationship with lois but not do so as clark i mean really 
all he's doing is literally two-timing. Like, he's just having his cake and eating it by as Clark pursuing Lacey. In a plot line, which is one of the things that suffers the most from the cuts, like, their relationship jumps forward in terms of them, like, going on dates and stuff when, like, there's scenes that are cut that show them hanging out more. But I do mm. think that, yeah, I mean, I, I think Lacey has got what is the closest thing to an arc in this <laughs> yeah, film because she has she has the character through line of she's introduced, as you say, as the kind of the, the spoiled rich kid. And then actually through her time being around the people at the Daily Planet and being around Clark, she starts to care about the things that they care about and she sides yeah. with them against her dad. And then she literally disappears from the film. Um, but, you know, she doesn't yeah. get any kind of plot resolution. She just disappears. But up to that point, she also gets at the end of this scene what I think is probably the best line of the whole film, which is when she's having that conversation with Lois, and Lois is a bit kind of awkward about Clark. She's like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't think you'll be you'll be Clark's type. And she goes, oh, nonsense, all men like me. I'm very, very rich. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. a good line. <laughs> that's, a, that's almost a Cat Grant kind of line. <laughs> yeah. I was really impressed, actually, with what they did with Lacey, because, again, it's just like, she starts out and you're like, oh, no, this will go so wrong. But I think normally with this type of character, what you'd expect is she's very spoiled. And then there's a scene where people or multiple people yell at her for being yeah. spoiled. And <laughs> then she learns her lesson. Yeah. But what happens is she just like, like you said, like gradually from being around these people yeah. and particularly being around Clark, yeah, she's she just like absorbs just by, yeah. niceness yeah. and slowly evolves. And it's such a lovely like. I don't know it doesn't if anything the movie is saying like the reason she was awful was because her dad was kind of infantilizing her and, and being terrible to her and if people just treat her with respect and she can see people being ethical good people she just naturally has the tendency to go that way like it is kind of optimistic in its own way and i like she gets again you could set up this whole like rivalry thing with her and lois but the, in having you know clark and superman essentially function as two different people like there's actually some really sweet scenes mm. where lois is like she tells clark like lacy really likes you. you should compliment her dress and like there's just like a really nice like they're kind of each other's wing woman and then like the irony is that they're doing that for the same man but like their relationship is actually very sweet together yeah <laughs> it's just a shame that sort of anything it might want to try and do with the characters is just lost in it's the kind of dropped, yeah. the plot fudge of everything right else. like Lacey isn't even in the like you know we wrap up the movie here we all are together she's literally just <laughs> not there at all so but then so before we can get into the the kind of the main i was going to say meat of the storyline as if there is actually any there but you know the, the the nuclear plot stuff uh we've still got we've got to introduce our our remaining other classic lead character which is done so in a, in a scene set in a quarry where Lex Luthor is is breaking rocks because like apparently pointlessly breaking meaningless rocks in a quarry really is something that prisoners do dressed in striped uniforms watched over by two cops slash guards one of whom is played by Matt McDonald aka Captain Hollister from Red Dwarf and that is the reason why I have a copy of Superman 4 signed by Matt McDonald. Uh, <laughs> I took it to him at the last Dimension Jump convention. He looked a little bit baffled. I think he'd forgotten that he was in the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is just there's a there's a lot going on here as as like Lex gets broken out of what isn't a prison. It's just a quarry. He gets broken out of a quarry <laughs> by his nephew turning up. And while while Matt McDonald in this scene is the sort of connection to something that I like, Lex's nephew, Lenny Luther 
Caroline is a is a connection to something that you like. It's true. Is our current. So here's an argument for the existence of Superman 4, right? Like if we didn't have the lows of Superman 4, we would not have the highs of John Cryer trying to make up for this not good character slash performance and delivering an awesome on-screen TV Lex Luthor. So I feel like right there, that's an argument for this movie existing. Like, yes, we had to, you know, go through some dark periods, but we came out with a really excellent Lex Luthor who actually in the episode that aired last night as we record this just had his own scene of breaking somebody out of prison. In that case, it was a prison bus. But again, timely themes. Everything's connecting. <laughs> I have no defense of this Lex plot at all. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I, the only thing I'll say about, about, and I will actually say something in Lenny's defense, which is that, I mean, I think the character is supposed to be aggressively obnoxious. Like, totally. I don't think anyone is. I mean, do you really think that, like, they thought that this character was going to appeal to kids? Or do you think that they thought this character is going to be an absolutely irritating valley speak douchebag? I think it's supposed to be a comic relief villain. Yeah. And it ends up being like, he's, you're, he's never supposed to be likable, but he's supposed to be like funny and the funny doesn't really work. But mm. that's not. I actually don't think that's John Cryer's fault at all. It's just like he did what they asked of him with mm. this character. It was just an ill-conceived mm. tone of a character, I think. See, this this whole plot, like the whole dynamic reminds me of Bulk and Skull from the Power Rangers. Like just <laughs> such idiotic banter between them. And like, I sort of get why he's there because it's like in the previous films, like Lex likes to keep idiots around him so that he feels smart. Like that's mm. a thing that he does. So I'm not, I don't feel like, why is this guy allowed to hang out with him? But it does feel a bit like they were trying to youth up <laughs> Lex Luthor, you know, to, to make him more modern and to make mm. the the film feel, I don't know, more present. And it just, it yeah. has the effect of really badly aging it. Because the other Superman films yeah. are sort of timeless. And this, you're just like, why is this skateboarding yeah, that, that character would only have been created in, in the late 80s. Yeah. 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 I do like the one scene where they break into a museum and steal <laughs> this piece of hair that Superman <laughs> has donated, which is just a great idea of like a display of <laughs> Superman's strength. They've taken one piece of his hair and they're, they're holding like a thousand pound weight with it, which is just a really fun bit of world building. And then them stealing it, I think is fun. And then everything after that could just go away and this movie would be far it better. It does turn better. out it's quite easy to cut this super strong hair well yes that's the thing isn't it like, i do quite like the idea of a museum having a single strand of superman's hair holding a comical spherical thousand kilo or whatever it is weight um i do think that if his hair is strong enough to hold that weight you probably wouldn't be able to cut it with a pair of bolt cutters i think what they're doing because i did actually watch this closely so i think the hair itself is like essentially tied into two little screws that is then holding up the weights and what they do is they bolt cut out the, like when you this is so no, good. Like, I think they just cut the hair. Right now with this thing. No, they're like holding the hair and the little screw is still on the end. So I think they cut through the screw, but the hair is intact. I massively respect that you have given this far more <laughs> thought than they did when they were making it. Because I'm pretty no, sure that when they were the making prop, it... I think that the, that's what the prop is. Mm, no, I think they, I think they just cut <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just going to say, just obviously, yeah, we, we've covered the hair theft, and we'll we'll come back to that plot line. But just be, before we just move on from Lenny, I mean, there isn't any defense, I think, yeah, for how for how aggressively irritating the character is portrayed. There is something that I quite like about the existence of Lenny, which is that he's not a character from comics lore, but he's kind of got enough elements of existing 
Lex Luthor lore, LLL, um, that, that he feels right. And like as a new creation, he feels like a correct creation to tie to Lex Luthor. And by that, I mean, traditionally, Lex Luthor usually has a sister or in later continuity, daughter character called Lena. So Lenny, Lena. And I know obviously Lena is a character in Supergirl. And also there is canonically Lex having an evil niece um who's usually <laughs> called nasty or nas nastalia she's in all-star superman um but there's this idea that like all of lex's family have basically you know <laughs> genetically evil because he's he, no no well no the opposite, the opposite actually okay. the rest of lex's family have shunned him because he's evil but he's got one niece who is also evil and so she kind of is his sidekick and she has been shunned by her parents because she's gone and sided with Lex and I like Lenny as an analogue of her but also with the name Lenny because it ties to Lena. You know, he doesn't otherwise share any personality traits but I do like the idea of Lex having a single other family member Mm -hmm. who's also a baddie when the rest of his family aren't. Yeah, yeah. That works. What do you guys think of Gene Hackman in this movie? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really isn't in any way comparable to the performance that he gives in the first It doesn't film. appear to even be a performance. Yeah. I spent a lot of the film going, is that him? Or is it someone who looks a lot like him? There are two things that are my favourite things about Gene Hackman in this film. Number one is, and okay, I can't say that I would have been the person to tell Gene Hackman of all people what to do. I don't know where this is going. But someone should have told him how to pronounce the word nuclear, given how many times he has to say it over the course of this film. It is astonishing how many times the word nuclear is said in this film. My other favourite thing about Gene Hackman is that their way in the previous films of allowing Gene Hackman to have hair, despite the fact that Lex Luthor is supposed to be bald, was, as we all know, that Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor, it turns out at the end of the first film, wears a wig. End of the first film, end of the second, one of them anyway, is wearing a wig. In this film, Gene Hackman is going bald. (laughs) So he has hair, but he has a bald spot at the back, which means that Lex Luthor is wearing a wig with a bald spot. (laughs) He's committed to a bit. (laughs) Yeah. So those are those are my favourite things about him in this. But otherwise, I think it's not what I would call a successful return. But also, no. I'm kind of glad that it is Lex and that it's not just like a randomly created new villain. <laughs> because I think that would be worse. And speaking of randomly created new villains... <laughs> <laughs> well we haven't got to him yet nuclear man hasn't turned up yet so let's 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 save him because i do actually quite like nuclear man but i think that's just like the seven-year-old version of me <laughs> talking i do think another argument for the existence of superman 4 and i don't i feel this more with lois than with lex but it does feel nice that this original group I mean, I don't know, or it feels terrible to some people that they're all here because it like sullies the reputation. But to me, it's like, it's nice that for the closing film, they're all here and we don't leave it with the weird, Mm. you know, like, and I I probably overall like Superman 3 more than this movie. But to me, if it ended on that one, the ending would feel more random. And this is like, okay, we got all our core players. We know where they are. We're leaving them. We can imagine them having more adventures. And in Mm. a way... I think that there's kind of a value to that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really give Jimmy Olsen anything to actually do other than the moment. There's a moment later on in the film where Superman turns up and Jimmy goes, what a scoop, and takes a picture. And it's like, Jimmy, you (laughs) see Superman 
all oh, the time. It was, it was a scoop that he turned up at the press conference. Yeah. It's just, I was it's happy just with that. that. He says, what a scoop. I thought it was cute. <laughs> but yeah, that's just, that is pretty much all that Jimmy gets to do. But, you know, Mark McClure, only person to appear in all five films in, in this franchise because he's in Supergirl as well. But yes, yeah, so before we get to all of that with Superman, we've got the, the kind of main instigating event of this film, which is that a badly dubbed school child uh, along with his badly dubbed teacher, basically <laughs> Stand decide... Stand outside that... Milton Keynes Station. <laughs> <laughs> well, first they're in school, and this this boy, Jeremy, decides that the way to solve the, the problem of potential nuclear war is to write a letter to Superman to get it all sorted out. So he, he writes a letter to Superman basically saying, hey, Superman, can you get rid of all nuclear weapons? And then the film cuts out the bit of the film where he actually says no. What he, he like the letter, the letter goes to the Daily Planet, and I think like Lois reads it, and Clark is there. But like then after that, the like the newspapers, you you have the bit with with the well, do you have the bit with the newspaper story before or after he's had his kind of crisis of conscience and talks to the Kryptonians and talks to Lois? I want to say it's before, but I don't one hundred percent remember. Yeah, because so the whole point is is that he kind of he gets this and he's like, well, you know, Superman kind of can't intervene effectively. But he, because he goes to the Fortress of Solitude, and this is where like the random Kryptonians, um, who are just like just these old dead, you know, they're they're not Jorel. <laughs> they're, they're like they're kind of like the guy who were the guys who went guilty, guilty in the first film um, yeah. to General Zod. But they basically that's where you get the yes, James, the fantastic argument that one of them makes, <laughs> which is that he should just go somewhere else where nuclear war isn't a problem. <laughs> Um, but the kind of the, the key the key takeaway from this is that is that the kind of the Kryptonian spirit holograms believe that he shouldn't intervene in what's going on in Earth. So that's pretty much where he makes his decision not to. But you don't that is not actually communicated to Jeremy or to the world. But the newspapers report on the fact that Superman has said, <laughs> like as the as the famous headline reads, Superman says, "Drop dead to kid," <laughs> which is one of my favourite things about this film. Um, so you have this, you have that this situation where, as I say, you know, Superman has disappointed Jeremy and has effectively said no. But the scene where he was supposed to do that is one of the things that got cut. But then he changes his mind after a conversation with Lois and. Of all the... Just when you thought this film couldn't possibly be any dumber, it goes and does something like this, but doesn't totally redeem itself. So Superman... Well, Clark... Hang on. Yeah, so it's it's as Clark, isn't it? Goes to Lois and then jumps off a balcony with Lois. Yeah, we need to talk about what is happening here because this was my main point of like, wait, I'm genuinely not following what is supposed to be happening. (laughs) Well, obviously it probably, some of it slightly relies on the remembered knowledge of what happened in Superman 2, which was that Lois completely naturally discovered his secret identity. They entered into a relationship. He lost his powers. It caused problems. He got his powers back and he wiped her memory. With his memory wiping kiss. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um so in but so in this film he decides to reveal to her that he is Superman so that they can have a conversation about what's troubling him. But the way in which he does this is that for a brief moment Lois believes that she has just been made to participate in a murder suicide because Clark grabs her and throws the two of them off a building before then transforming into Superman and flying off with her. So then they fly around a bit and you have a effectively a, a I don't know why someone would decide to redo 
the worst part, like the only really bad part of the first film, but at least it doesn't have the poem in it. And then they have a conversation where kind of what he's saying to her about his dilemma doesn't really make sense. Like sort of, they have a conversation where like they both kind of say words, (laughs) but... I don't think what either of them say says actually relates to the problem that Superman is having. <laughs> and there's a bit where he says a line about something about it's not fair that he's been told that he should never set one above the rest. And it's like, well, we've never heard the Kryptonians say that to him. And also... Yeah, that is definitely a confusion. This dilemma is not about his relationship with Lois. It's about nuclear war. <laughs> yeah, I did like think I was watching a different scene. I was like, oh, is that he's going to... You know, he's going to come clean about being Superman and, and they're yeah. going to be together. And then at the end of the scene, he yeah. pulls the memory wiping kiss again and she goes, yeah. oh, what's, what's, what happened? And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. So your reading of the scene is he like, he, they jump off the balcony, which mm-hmm. actually I think the moment of them jumping off the balcony is like fantastic. I was very into that moment. It's like weird. It's we- Clark acting weirder than we usually see him. But your reading of the scene is they jump off the balcony. He reveals himself. At that point, she knows that Clark and Superman are the same and they talk. And then by the end, he's memory wiped her and she's forgotten. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That I couldn't even follow all of what was happening there. <laughs> and I've seen Superman too, but I, I don't know. I couldn't figure out if in the moment she knew that Clark was Superman right. or she thought that like Clark died and then separately Superman saved Oh no, no, her. no, no. Because no. she says that she remembers. Yeah, like yeah. You know, the, the memories have come back or something and it's like yeah. implied I don't know. I... that she's remembered everything from Superman too, yeah. Yeah. This was confusing. The logistics of what was happening to her was confusing and I also agree that the logistics of like the philosophy he was laying out was <laughs> not well articulated. I do think the moment he just grabs her hand and jumps off the balcony is I can see that. I mean great. it's you know it's 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 comparable to like Lois throwing herself out of a window to which again it had they see that's in is that in Donnacut? That is that's Donnacut rather than the final. There's so much good stuff in the Donnacut of Superman 2 that didn't make it into the real film, but basically at the start of what was originally Superman 2, rather than it happening when they're at, at night Niagara Falls and like he burns his hand and she finds out that way. Lois actually suspects that Clark is Superman and she throws herself out of a window to prove it. So she's like, because she says, I'm going to jump out of this window because if you're not Superman, you won't save me. And if you are, you're going to change into Superman and save me. So she jumps out of a window and he has to do an elaborate scheme of like blowing awnings and stuff to get her to bounce safely to the ground <laughs> without actually turning into Superman. So which obviously, yeah, actually, yeah, because she does it in Niagara Falls, doesn't she? She jumps into the water. But yeah. the, the, the the version of her jumping out of the Daily Planet building is, is really good as well. So, yeah, I can see that as a quite good sort of, oh, wow, that's a shocking moment but yeah the rest of it is just <laughs> it's very confusing <laughs> but no yeah it's it, it's it, it's it's clear enough i think uh, to me at least that she well it's bizarre because like he reveals that he's superman and that seems to trigger her remembering everything that happened but it's like if something that simple can trigger her remember ev- remembering everything then he's on risky ground doing the kiss again because if she figures it out again she'll remember everything instantly again mm-hmm. yeah and she'll probably be like why why do you keep wiping my memory that's not yeah. cool yeah i was gonna say it seems kind of rude to just keep it, it feels mean-spirited at the end where he's like oh why are you out in the balcony i'm in here changing it's it's horrendous i think it's absolutely awful i mean this is this is at least this is the second time on screen it's hard yeah. not to assume he just does it all the time whenever he needs a chat right mm. right Okay, so this scene doesn't work, but I 
I, I don't mind that then we're getting into him deciding to get rid of the nuclear weapons. I kind of, I'm like, okay, at least this is going somewhere. So so he decides to get rid of all the nuclear weapons. So he flies to, because I, I think independently of that, I think has Jeremy, been, has Jeremy been invited to the UN anyway, but then Superman flies to the UN to meet them. He flies to the UN's famous building at Milton Keynes Central Station. <laughs> <laughs> so James, your connection every to this film. <laughs> on my way to work. Wow. <laughs> James lives in Milton Keynes. <laughs> it's it, just I mean The thing is, right, if you've if you've never been to New York, it doesn't look that incongruous that this could be a sort of major metropolitan area. They it's not that mm. it's not that bad. Anytime they show you the sky and there are very obviously no skyscrapers in the background. That is I think, fair. I think if if they kept every shot just because obviously the reason they've done it is they've gone, where is the nearest place to whether it's Shepperton or Pinewood or Elstree that's got some buildings that look a bit glassy like the buildings in New York? And this is like this is nineteen eighty seven, so you haven't got canary wharf and you haven't got the city you know you haven't got sort of gleaming new york-esque skyscraper buildings in london so i can see that someone's seen milton Keynes central station and gone well that's a load of shiny glass and metal but what they haven't done is kept the shots close and tight enough to not reveal that this is not manhattan slash metropolis in the background so it's just awkward and I, I do love the shot of them just walking across what is just like the paved car park um, where they just plonked a fire hydrant just in the middle of the pavement <laughs> just to go yes look this really is new york this is the united nations i agree that this you know this again as with the subway scene the scenes are the seams are starting to show but the scene where Superman walks into the UN and asks to speak and the like the chairwoman says you're gonna need a sponsor and like every country <laughs> raises their hand, that genuinely made me yeah, cheer up. That was I a good thought moment. that was such a lovely moment. And again, like that's I don't know, that's just such a lovely idea and such good world building of how Superman fits into this world and how much respect everyone has and the weight of why he doesn't wanna be seen, you know, weighing in on one side or another on these issues, but then how compelled he feels to do that. I think this is good like rich thematic stuff to deal mm-hmm. with here. I think up to a point, and I, yeah, I, I do agree with you that the the initial reaction to Superman at the UN is good and nicely done. I mean, you kind of have to ignore again how kind of small and cheap the room looks, and the fact that one of the delegates mm-hmm. um, has an identifier saying that they that they are the representative for England, um, <laughs> which is apparently a nation in its own right. Well, as give, far it as time, so give it time. Give it time. Well, yeah, ahead of its time. Um, also, the 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 general secretary or or whoever it is who who lets him speak is the second person from this film who's been in Red Dwarf because it's Indira Joshi who was in in season series ten of Red Dwarf. I think the reaction to his speech, where what you've basically got is, let me just break this down. Right, a superpowered alien who everyone knows is an alien has just walked into the United Nations and said. I am going to, by force and without your consent, take away all of your nuclear weapons. And they all cheer. Yes, I bumped up. <laughs> I, I was like, I totally believe some countries would cheer. Yeah. When they get to a shot of a US representative cheering, I was like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. This would not be the reaction from one of these. Yeah, super I think any, any nation also, with nuclear arms is probably going to go, mm, not sure about that one. 
Yeah. The other problem is getting rid of the nuclear weapons yeah. does not get rid of the potential to build more or the knowledge, no. you know, that people have of how to build them. Again, if we're thinking of it as a kid's cartoon and we're taking it at that, you know, level, I think it's a mm. nice thematic idea. And I can sort of buy into it like that everyone in, in some way is relieved that they don't need to continue this arms race because they're all on an equal playing field. In reality, no, of course, this is not yeah. how the reaction would be <laughs> I mean, at all. I think the, uh, this is you were saying uh, before, um, Caroline, about not really being able to follow what's happening in that Clark and Lois mm-hmm. scene. I genuinely and I still don't know. And I'm interested to know if either of you have an answer to this. Right. When he starts to get rid of all the nuclear weapons and everyone's firing them. Right. Are they willingly firing the missiles into space so that Superman can get rid of it? Have they all agreed, Superman's going to get rid of our nuclear weapons because we can't do it ourselves, so we're going to shoot them all into space and he'll catch them and put them in the sun? Or are they all testing their weapons slash firing them and he's intercepting them and throwing them into the sun? Which is happening there? Because I've got no (laughs) idea. I don't know either. When I was originally (laughs) watching this, I thought they were testing them and he was forcefully collecting them Mm. upon further reflection at the end of the movie i thought oh i think what we were supposed to take away from that scene was that they were willingly giving them up and that he was then you know just doing the last leg of that and throwing them into the sun Mm. i mean collecting the nuclear weapons into a giant net and swinging and throwing (laughs) it into the sun i mean again i think you look at that through the eyes of if this is supposed to be a film you know, in the in the lineage of the original Richard Donner Superman film, for all that that film did do some ridiculous things, that is just so stupidly cartoonish. I think if you, as you have been doing, if you try to look at this film as just an overgrown cartoon, then that's not so terrible. But it is just hilariously ridiculous. It does have Captain Planet vibes, do it? Yeah. For oh, this whole movie has big <laughs> well, Captain yeah. Planet vibes. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. But you know what? I grew up on Captain Planet, so that's why I'm responding well to this <laughs> <Yeah>. film. <laughs> but then what's bizarre is that after he's done that, there are still nuclear weapons on Earth. Because in order for the plot yeah. of the, the rest of the film to happen, there has to be another launch later on. So you have the you have the continuation of the Lex plot, which is that Lex has teamed up with an Englishman... No, not an Englishman, an American, a Frenchman, and a Russian. It's just that the Frenchman is played by an Englishman. Uh, Jim Broadbent as a as a French arms dealer. Uh, good old William Hootkins as uh, an American general. And I don't know the name of the actor playing the the, the Russian, uh, who is also a Russian general. So these three people are people who would all like war profiteering to continue, as would Lex. Although there is a... I mean, try not to think too much about the logistics of this plot, but... If Superman has said, I'm going to get rid of all nuclear weapons, and these people... Well, firstly, where are these people going to get their nuclear weapons to sell? And secondly, if they do manage to make more, who are they going to sell them to? And won't Superman just get rid of them as soon as they're Mm -hmm. back in circulation? But anyway, let's just roll with it, the idea that basically what's happened is Superman has cleaned the slate of nuclear weapons, so now... Or at least tried to. Maybe we could believe that... Maybe we are meant to believe that not everyone has fully yeah. given them up. Or is it, or yeah, I mean, I guess is it actually just because obviously his plan is that he wants to get rid of slash stop Superman. So he needs to get rid of Superman so that Superman won't keep getting rid of the nuclear weapons. Sure. So his plot is to create a nuclear powered superhero 
Superhero? No, he's not going to create a nuclear-powered supervillain by attaching the uh, genetic material developed from the Superman's hair that he stole with presumably some of his own genetic material to explain the fact that later on Nuclear Man has his voice and a little bit of fabric, golden black fabric cloth that all gets put in a box with a special mini computer thing that will get attached to another one of the... So this is the thing. It's like It seems like Superman's finished, but he obviously hasn't because there's another nuclear test that they that they fire and Superman catches it and throws that into the sun. Before I kind of go on with the Nuclear Man plot, I imagine I think, James, you are. Caroline, are you aware of like the whole Nuclear Man 1 thing? Only what I read on Wikipedia. Right. So you haven't watched the scene on YouTube? No. Oh, you should watch the scene on YouTube. <laughs> so the way that this film was originally made, there was a first nuclear man, a failed experiment, <laughs> who's basically kind of like Bizarro, except but not in a Superman costume, played by Clive Mantle, a name that will mean nothing to Caroline, but to a lot of UK listeners will remember him uh, from the long-running UK drama Casualty. Um, but basically... The first attempt that Lex has to create a nuclear-powered foe to fight Superman results in this spiky-haired, kind of brain-dead zombie creature who runs into Clark, who then obviously becomes Superman, um, like at a nightclub and attempt... Cause there's, so there's a whole scene missing where Lacey and Clark go to a nightclub launch night thing, which I think is made reference to in the gym scene that you get, where you have the oh, he's being bullied by a big muscly guy, except the guy isn't a big muscly guy, so it kind of <laughs> ruins that scene. Um, but yeah, so like they are, they're at like this party at a nightclub. I think he sort of takes a liking to, to Lacey and attempts to kidnap her, and then him and Superman have a fight, which is kind of almost played for laughs because he's kind of, he's bumbling and stupid. Um, he gets destroyed, and then that bit where Lex has that like blob of goo that goes in the box to go on the missile, that's the remnants of version one that gets turned mm-hmm. into version two, which is the Mark Pillow version with the flowing blonde hair and the gold costume. So I don't think the film loses much by not having the silly failed version of Nuclear Man. I think that was probably a wise cut. The problem is that later in the film, there is absolutely no explanation for why the nuclear man that we do get has an obsession with Lacey and decides to kidnap her. That was without doubt my biggest question for this film <laughs> to the point where I paused it and went on Wikipedia and was like, did I, did I fall asleep during a scene where they explain this? I will lay my cards on the table as much as I've been defending this movie. And I think said, maybe you can take over here, but I honestly have nothing nice to say about Nuclear Man. I don't think he's interesting. I don't think he's fun to watch. It's the stuff when he's in it that this movie falls apart the most to me. I mean, obviously, the the, the problem is that he's a character that only exists to be a physical threat because he has no personality in character. He's he's dubbed over by Gene Hackman because for some reason he's got Lex Luthor's voice. So you you can't get a performance out of out of Mark Pillow. So he only exists to do two things, which is to kind of stand there and be intimidating, and then to have fights with Superman and to kind of destroy stuff. And when he's having fights with Superman and destroying stuff is pretty much when the film is at its worst because the fights just just don't work. They look terrible. And all the stuff with him destroying stuff, again, is just where you get the worst leaps in terms of, well, he just pointed at that thing and then it exploded. What's, what's going on there? 
I do think that as a character design, I think Nuclear Man looks quite good. I mean, he's very, mad? very 80s. Are you mad? <laughs> I think he's quite sort of... I think going for the, for a sort of here is a dark version of Superman... I think they sort of because what they do is they have the I mean I don't know why he's got like no sleeves but they have the the elements of Superman's costume but in a kind of darker twisted version. I like the N logo in the sun. Um, I I know as I said I don't know if it's just me not being able to separate it from liking that character design when I was a kid, but I do quite like the character design and I think it's funny that he looks like he should be on Gladiators. Yeah. I feel like I can say with some confidence that this is your leftover nostalgia because this guy <laughs> just looks like a really bad knockoff pro wrestler and I think he is every bit as dated as the Lenny character in terms of <laughs> Absolutely. like the 80s 100, yeah, masculine 100% aesthetic. agree with that. <laughs> I do really like the scene where he sets off a volcano and Superman cuts the top of a mountain off and puts it on <laughs> I genuinely thought that was so funny and clever. <laughs> so I will give Nuclear Man points for occasionally causing some interesting destruction. Again, I think if you took each of his little individual battles and cut them up and had each one of those be a little climax at the end of a you know kids TV show, it'd be fine. They start to just really run together where there'll be like five fights in a row. And I'm like, I am not invested in this character or this rivalry. And my brain really just shuts off then. <laughs> Well, you've got sort of so around this point when sort of Nuclear Man's kind of first introduced. You first of all have the the fantastic detail that he doesn't work if he's not in direct sunlight. <laughs> uh, but then there's this there's this weird thing where he sort of when he steps into the darkness in Lex's penthouse, like he loses his power, but Lex can reflect a bit of sun onto him. But there doesn't seem to be like there's a lot of reflective surfaces in in Lex's penthouse. I think probably there's still a bit of sunlight there. But anyway. Then you have that sequence, yeah, where basically Nuclear Man's told that he has to go and destroy Superman, but first he wants to kind of go around and destroy a load of stuff. So you have the volcano thing. You also have the Great Wall of China. So it's daylight in America and China and Italy (laughs) simultaneously, which is fun. The Great Wall of China scene, which, you know... I don't have an objection to a scene where Nuclear Man turns up and kind of, you know points and presumably fires some kind of energy blast that just wasn't added in as a special effect in order to blow up bits of the Great Wall of China. I do have an issue with the fact that in order to fix it, Superman looks at the wall and it goes and like just perfectly builds blocks with his masonry vision that also makes a bleepy sound effect. That's just one of those where it's like even and all the stuff we talked about earlier about kind of giving Superman inexplicable powers and and you know throughout this and the previous films there is that whole weird telekinesis thing that is not a weird telekinesis thing like he's he's not he's not making all the broken bits of the wall fly back together like he's literally conjuring up brand new perfectly aligned bricks with his eyes it's just <laughs> yeah it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost, this scene in particular, I mean, I think rebuilding the wall almost crosses over into so bad it's good. But the rest <laughs> of the fight, apart from the putting the mountain on top of the volcano, which is incredible, but the rest of it is just very boring. And having it all end with 
um, Superman just getting scratched he gets in the scratched. neck. He gets scratched on the neck. <laughs> end point. And I think I, this is where the movie really just starts to lose me in general. I mean, there's never really an adequate explanation for why. Bearing in mind that Superman draws all of his power from the sun. So then he has a fight with a being who is completely powered by the sun and who is partly made from his own genetic material and yet being scratched on the neck by him like causes him to nearly die. And it's like if it, if you just had a line somewhere that Lex had put a bit of kryptonite in the box, that's all you would have needed. Just a little a little shard of kryptonite. Sure, yeah. in I, there. I just assumed radiation was the answer. Because that's how comics tend to work. Well, yeah, but but radiation, which comes from the sun, right? Yeah, but kryptonite radiation is, is what, what harms him. So Superman. he's vulnerable to radiation. I can, well, I can buy. Vul- no, he's not vulnerable to all radiation. I can buy, like, oh, you know, uranium hurts Superman or whatever. It would have been nice sure to hear it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, how do we feel about the scene where basically? Like the, I feel like the sort of the emotional crux of this film is supposed to be when Lois comes to Clark's who is sick and i almost get the sense that on some level she like she doesn't consciously realize they're the same person but she says she like feels compelled to come and help him so i feel like that's sort of you know drawing the two sides of him together Mm -hmm. but do you guys like the scene where she sort of like gives him the pep talk that ultimately saves the day i mean like is a strong word but it's again it is probably one of the scenes that's a bit more successful yeah it's 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 tough because i think i don't even think the filmmakers know at this point whether she's supposed to no or not because when she says the bit at the end about oh if he was here i'd tell him this this and this that is Mm -hmm. your classic well we both know that he is here i'm just not saying it and that's fine and that would that in itself would be a really nice moment and actually like it's almost like the the superman films as a whole with that whole dynamic are almost crying out for a moment like that because i've always liked the interpretation of the Lois and Clark dynamic before they're actually like a couple and she knows that of course she knows she just doesn't say anything because it's important to him to have his secret identity and actually you know there's an idea even that like everyone at the Daily Planet knows that it's Clark this there was actually there was a I can't remember when it's from but what what issue it's from it's a story from I think from the 80s yeah because it's from it's from the era so it's either late 70s or early 80s because it's from the era when Clark is working at GBS, the TV station, and Lana Lang is, is working there as well. And basically he has a dream where he's Clark and something happens and Lana says to him, well, what are you waiting for? Go and turn into Superman. And <laughs> he's like, what? I'm not Superman. And she's like, yes, you are. We all know that you're Superman. <laughs> like we just <laughs> haven't been saying anything. I've always liked that interpretation. And... If this scene was just a scene where Lois made clear to him that she knows without telling him that she knows, so effectively the secret is being maintained, but she's helping him by letting on that she's known all along, that would be fantastic. The problem is that the opening part of that scene plays out as if she remotely has no idea that Clark and Superman are the same person. I was mostly willing to go with, I agree that what you're describing would be stronger. I was mostly willing to go with it as a sort of like, I feel compelled to do this and I don't know why. And I'm understanding on a, you know, this like deep emotional level, but I can't put it into words sort of thing. I I think the scene is good. Like of this ending latter half of the film, which I don't think is good i think that the scene is a high point and then we sort of get into the what feels like just the exact same superman nuclear man fight we just had except now some of it goes to the moon but yeah the the lowest scene is like a a high point for me and 
a relative low point of the film. I mean, any scene that gets to play on the fact that Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder have this chemistry that's run through four films and mm-hmm. their friendship outside of the films is likely to, you know, be among the strongest stuff that the film's going to do. I mean, I do think that generally, I think, I think it's, I think quite sadly, you can kind of see the downturn in Margot Kidder's career that has already started to happen at this point and will only continue. But I think she does still get the odd opportunity to show why she was so good originally. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Do either of you feel, I mean, <laughs> not to rush us through, but to me, this is where the movie, I, my mind just goes like, what happened? Oh yeah, moon, something, something, somehow oh, Lacey's floating moon. in space, the end. <laughs> like, I'm very, I don't feel like I have a ton to say about this final yeah. fight scene. There's oh, no I've... mountains being put into volcanoes, so. Well, I, I think I think this is where, I think the film just, it, it is almost, the final kind of, battle sequences are almost where the film just kind of throws its hands up and goes yeah whatever but i think the fact that you've got first of all you've got this so yeah you've had you've had nuclear man suddenly decide that he's that he's after lacy and just uh, the fact that this this entire plot thread is only introduced by him saying to to superman where is the woman and Superman somehow knows which woman he needs, yeah. even though they've never had a conversation about this before. So Superman tricks him into a lift by basically looking at a lift and going, don't go in there, she's definitely not in there. <laughs> so he goes in the lift, and closing the lift door cuts off the sunlight, so Nuclear Man loses his powers. So Superman flies him to the moon, leaves him on the moon, and just leaves him there. And, I mean, well, this is where I'm torn, because... If like the physics in this film worked as it should, then that shouldn't be a problem because as I think you said at the start, like leaving him on the dark side of the moon, it would always be the dark side of the moon. But in this film, the sun rises on the moon, so some sunlight sifts through the gaps in the the lift, uh, which means uh, that hang, Superman... hang on, hang on, hang on. The dark side of the moon isn't literally dark all the time. Dark side of the moon faces away from the Earth, which means sometimes it's pointing at the sun. But to re- it doesn't it doesn't rotate. It doesn't on rotate. day and night cycle. No, that is true. So, like it it has to go around in order. Okay, to... I think we're reaching a point where we are giving this movie far too much thought <laughs> than these people put into. I mean, we're literally talking about someone who carried a guy up in an elevator to the moon, who and the person who will then kidnap a woman and bring her to space with no. <laughs> Uh, when when suit on and just when that scene happens i was kind of going like well maybe he can protect her so so that she can breathe (laughs) but shouldn't the friction incinerator on re-entry yes i mean it's like i mean the film as i said the film's already like i think the film's already at the start so it's shown us I, i think actually when you think about it those opening two scenes are really clever because they they are the kind of the the chekhov's gun of setting up like (laughs) <laughs> Maybe if Chekhov's gun had a little flag in it that said bang on. <laughs> <laughs> no, right, because in the opening scene, the opening scene establishes that there's air and atmosphere in space. And the second scene <laughs> establishes that if something goes fast in something, in this case a baseball, goes fast enough to escape um, the Earth's atmosphere, it doesn't get burned up. Yeah. So. <laughs> True, seamless film. <laughs> So therefore, it's it's entirely possible for Lacey to be carried into space, to audibly scream in space, 
to get dropped and to fall as if there is gravity in space <laughs> and then get carried safely back to Earth. And then Superman basically... Oh, we've missed the bit where, where Nuclear Man blows at Superman and a block of ice forms around him in space. True. Which is good. And then when Superman breaks out of it, it explodes with like actual fire explosion, which is good as well. Um, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. This is all gold. <laughs> I do think the final solution of dropping Nuclear Man into a nuclear power plant and using him as an energy source, that I will give that points for cleverness. I think that's a nice way to like deal with this villain in a way that's specific to the villain's power set. I would say that that I would raise the question of why a nuclear power plant just had a big open hatch ready for <laughs> something to be dropped into it, to be honest. Although that said, this is the genre that brought us uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger falling into a uh, vat of cryogenic chemicals that was just open, and Jamie Foxx <laughs> falling into a vat full of electric eels that would just happen to be open. So yeah. uh, maybe this is just setting the precedent for that. But yeah, I think ultimately, like as fun as it is to pick apart all these little things, like these are not the ultimate. You know what I mean? Like if the the only the problem with this movie is not that it's not dealing with the dark side of the moon correctly yeah. <laughs> like its problems are far bigger than that and that's not you know it's not like if you fix that the whole thing would be good i think ultimately it just doesn't build up to a satisfying final force for superman to face off against like i get the idea of trying to you know empower embody this nuclear arms race with a literal nuclear nuclear man but i think it ultimately it thematically doesn't feel like it ties in it just yeah feels that, like that is absolutely shenanigans that's absolutely the problem isn't it that it doesn't it doesn't dovetail with the rest of the story which is that it's about superman trying to de-escalate the arms race on earth to save everyone no, I mean, actually, what, what happens is is that as a direct result of Superman throwing nuclear weapons into the sun, a fearsome nuclear-powered villain gets yeah, created yeah. who comes to Earth and causes a load of havoc. And then once he's been destroyed, the film realises that it needs to end. So there is absolutely no resolution to the question of what's going to happen about nuclear weapons from now on. See, I disagree. I actually think that that's where it gets into its more interesting point because he gives he gives a speech that's like, ultimately, this can't come from one person forcing this on you. This has to come from you all as a humanity collectively deciding to do this. And to me, I think that is a more interesting thesis than the silliness of him just throwing this all into the sun. Like Superman sort of acknowledging... But why? The value of what he can do, but that there's a limitation to it too. The thing is though, right, Superman has taken all the nuclear weapons and thrown them into the sun, right? So one of two things has happened, right? Either he has got rid of all of them and they're all gone, or he's got rid of some of them, but there are still a load left. Yeah. But in either of those cases, we don't know what the result of either of those things happening is. Like, if he got rid of them all ignoring nuclear man because nuclear man is an entirely separate issue ignoring that what has happened if he's got rid of them all what is the state of the world as a result of superman getting rid of all nuclear weapons alternatively if he hasn't got rid of them all what is the result of him having got rid of some of them either way something has happened in terms of the state of the world that has meant that superman has basically gone well, my decision to get rid of all nuclear weapons was wrong, and I now I'm going to the UN to tell them it's not my decision to make. But what's made him realise that? Mm. Nothing has made him realise that it was wrong. All I can see is that things are exactly the same as they were before. But they can't be exactly the same as they were before if he's got rid of all the nuclear weapons. 
I think the idea is that he, I think thinking about it now, I think the idea was he got rid of the, like he made this announcement, a a bunch of countries willingly got rid of it, but we're supposed to assume that a lot of countries didn't. And that now, you know, so we had like the people that, that gave things up. Some people are still holding on and he's saying like, Hey, I don't want to be the person that goes around and says like, us, I'm digging up your weapons and taking them away. You guys all have to come to this realization on your own. I'm, I'm not saying it argues that well, but I can at least see the shape of that as an endpoint for this. And I think more importantly, I think that this works on a metaphorical level. Like there, you know, at some point this, these things are never going to be super literal, but I think in terms of a metaphorical superhero story, having Superman say, you all need to step up to the plate is like, feels like the right note to end on to me. I mean, I, 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 I agree because I think it's, uh, you know, the film kind of has to come out with a message of, well, okay, what do we do in a world where we don't have a Superman to get rid of all of our nuclear weapons? And that would certainly, I can see that being the, you know, that final speech, I can see that being the message that Christopher Reeve wanted to come out of this film. Effectively, you know, that line about, you know, it's a bit cheesy, but it's a nice line about, you know, I wish you could all see the world as I see it, you know, when Superman's up yeah, in space, he doesn't really see like any borders. Line. Again, I can, I can, that's the kind of line I can imagine being in the script from, day one in fact now that i think about it i think i have read that uh literally christopher reeve and possibly one of the writers and somebody else went to see and like a screening of a documentary that showed the earth from space and that's basically what gave him the idea for what the film should yeah. be about it's something so, that, that real astronauts say a lot yeah. actually that going to space and seeing the full earth in that way like really changes your perspective on it i really like that line. so so that's that's great and that's you know i can understand that as the message basically but what we haven't had is any kind of moment of him learning or realizing that it wasn't the answer because as i say all i can see in this film is you know especially given that everyone cheered when he said he was going to get rid of them like the way that this plays out is the world is happy to have all the nuclear weapons taken away and then everything is fine (laughs) apart from the fact that nuclear man's around so when he's got rid of nuclear man he should be going to the to the united nations and going well that's nice all the nuclear weapons are gone we've got will everything's fine there we are missing the entire plot development that has superman realize that him just getting rid of the nuclear weapons won't solve everything yeah it's fair enough again i think to me i'm willing to take it on a less literal level and maybe even in that speech it's less about him saying you know maybe he is kind of acknowledging even if i take all these weapons away people could just build more and Mm. so ultimately it is down to the people i totally agree with you that this does not feel well earned like i I think (laughs) it's very clear that this movie is not earning the things it's doing but again i think it's a more interesting idea than a lot of movies end with so i will at least give it credit for that (laughs) it's not quite black panther is it (laughs) right right (laughs) but it's reaching yeah i just think it's yeah i just think it doesn't really know well no it it knows what it wants to say it just really doesn't know how to get to get there there. yeah yeah Um, (laughs) exactly and you know and and like that that concept of what would happen if superman really decided to get involved in the world's affairs i mean that has been done in other things there is a there's a um uh, an annual in the so there was a crossover in 1991 called Armageddon 2001 and the premise of it I think I've talked about it on the podcast before but the premise of it was that in the year 2001 which back then was 10 years in the future rather than being 19 years in the past as it is to us now there was like a dictator running the earth called Monarch who used to be one of the world's greatest superheroes and this guy has come back in time from 2001 to to basically meet all of the superheroes and, and look at their futures because he's got time powers and find out 
who turns into monarch so that he can stop it happening so you get a series like all the kind of one-shot annuals that summer were about the different characters about him looking into their future to see what their future is and it all it turns out to only be possible futures rather than the real future and one of the superman possible futures is metropolis gets wiped out by a nuclear bomb and so superman goes mad and like decides to rid the world of nuclear weapons and does so in an extremely aggressive way and so becomes like the enemy of the world because he's you know he's going around on this insane peacenik campaign to get rid of all <laughs> nuclear weapons but in the process you know becomes a threat to everybody and it's it's a it's a really well done and really interesting story where it's like well yeah no one can argue that wanting to get rid of nuclear weapons is a good thing but if one man with that amount of power took it upon himself to do it would it actually be a good thing or not and that's obviously what this film is trying to do but have you read rising stars i have not because you know i don't really like j michael straczynski but i have heard it's (laughs) rising stars is j michael straczynski's like superhero epic about a generation of kids with superpowers and one of the plot lines in that story is that the character who is essentially superman late in his life takes it upon himself to like forcibly disarm the world mm. and it like as an ongoing storyline it goes into a bit more depth about yeah. how people would take this and how governments would take this and what he might do to try and stop it um and he sort of has to become this like dictator figure which is to say like if i catch you with nuclear weapons i will like wipe your country off the face of the map because i could do that yeah so like it's an interesting it as an idea it's something that clearly various writers have returned to within the genre and I think this is probably the first time it was done. I need to go back and have a look at the one, actually, and see whether that predates this or not, because I think something similar happened in that. But yeah, I, I think mean, the, as, yeah, like... The, the, the Rising Stars won't be the first time. Oh, no, 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 yeah, the, the, the one, the one I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, where was I going with that? Maybe here's a, a question we can end on. Are you, or, you know, start to wrap things up on, are you guys glad that this movie exists, <laughs> or would you have preferred that Superman 3 was the final in a trilogy i mean i'm i'm definitely glad this film exists because there's an awful lot to talk about and enjoy and as i say you know sort of i think that i think as a as a behind the scenes story if nothing else it is it it Mm -hmm. is genuinely to me one of the most fascinating stories in blockbuster cinema (laughs) um you know what what they were trying to do what they did what what ended up it's just you know and it will always amuse me that there is a superman film shot in Milton Keynes (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I think as a kid I definitely liked Superman 3 and 4 more than the other two Mm. and I think there's probably a lot of value in having a film that is sort of unashamedly aimed at children with this kind of like anti-nuclear sort of pacifist message like mm-hmm. the the bits that are good about it stuck with me and the bits that are bad about it I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I do think it's easy to just because it's so episodic it's easy to in your mind <laughs> either focus on the good yeah. or the bad I guess, but it's easy to to pick out whichever parts you like. I I just think I don't know Superman's just such a nice character and I like <laughs> watching someone who's so powerful just like have to grapple with that in a kind way. I just think it's so interesting. Like I think more and more I'm realizing that these stories are valuable and interesting even when they fail and even when they don't you know <laughs> actually think through the plot beats of his arc fully i still find this a lot more interesting than like a middling batman movie almost. <laughs> like a, a middling or bad superman movie i think has more thematic value than a lot of these uh, random d- depends on the director 
Yeah, fair enough. A a middling Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Yeah. I would say, this is what I was about to say, actually, is that I would find it hard to argue in favour of the deletion of a Christopher Reeve Superman performance. Mm. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're never getting any more of those. And even this one has plenty going for it. Like, out of everyone, he's not phoning it in. He's not, like, giving it a half-ass job. He knew when when he was making the film that it was going to be crap. Like, that's on Mm. record. But you can't tell that from the performance. Like, he gives it everything. There is a... I do feel like, obviously, compared with, like, 78, I think there is a... You know, it's 10 years later. He's in his, like, mid-late 30s by this point. I think it's not a film where he's, like, the most energetic take on superman i think there is a slight slowing down but that's not necessarily you know there and it's true in the comics as well there's plenty of good versions of an older superman and what he what he never loses is the the gravitas and the authority and the calmness and the charm mm-hmm. and so even if he's not the the 20 something you know incredibly bulked up um young guy that he was when he shot the first one and so it, you know, it, what it isn't really about is about the kind of the amazing physical feats of Superman. He's still the guy who, if if like if he's standing there, you've got a sense that everything's going to be all right. You've always got that with Christopher yeah. Reeve Superman. Um, I think probably other, although other than the kind of the misstep of um, of the whole the thing with Lois and the and the cruelly wiping the memory. The only other thing where I think he makes a misstep was the the last thing that I wanted to talk about in relation to this was uh, the bizarre sight of. Uh, of a twenty-something man being handed over to a slightly shady-looking priest to to deal with and discipline. Yeah, that's uh... it, it was. Um, <laughs> this was when Lenny gets. Yeah, I mean, again, the idea of not putting Lenny in prison and saying we have a chance to reform you, lovely. The optics of it do not retroactively <laughs> play yeah. particularly well. Yeah, I one of my favorite things about Christopher Reeve's Superman is the subtext that like half of Clark Kent is just a disguise and like he's acting clumsy because that literally helps him and half of it is just like you get the sense that he just finds it really funny (laughs) and like entertaining to himself to be like there's a part where he and Lacey are in a workout class no one's watching him and he's just Mm. doing a really bad (laughs) job and you're like yeah he just finds this really fun to be as dweeby as possible and I think that's a very charming subtext of this particular Clark Kent you should uh you should definitely read All-Star Superman because there's some they do some really good stuff Mm. in that in terms of using his in fact I think they do it in the first film as well don't they where he he uses his clumsiness as an excuse to like save people without people realizing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's really well done. Yeah. Have we covered it all? Have we left no stone <laughs> unturned? Oh, I mean, I, well, I do think it's, it is, it's, <laughs> it is entirely possible to keep talking about it, particularly as I say, in relation to the behind the scenes stuff for, for hours and hours. But no, I think we've, uh, yeah, and particularly given the way that the film just just like jettisons its its threads and pizza, you know the the fact that there's you know obviously there is that brief resolution to the Daily Planet saga, which is just that that Perry White convinces the banks to to lend him the money. To, I don't understand how he can buy out uh, the shares because if David like if David Warfield wasn't a majority shareholder before, then buying someone else's shares is not going to make him a do you know what I mean? It's like Perry White buys a load of other people's shares in order to turn David Warfield from a majority shareholder into a minority shareholder. But if he was a minority shareholder beforehand, Perry would have to buy his shares in order to make him a minority. Would he not? Uh, possibly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I get the sense nobody yeah, we'll really give cares it to about you. this. Clearly, you have thought about this far more than James and I have, so I'm happy to assume that this doesn't make sense. Anyway, they they get rid of the war fields, but which again is a sort because you don't get there's no there's no last scene for Lacey, so it's like, well, where's she in this? Yeah. Like, is she sticking around? Are her and Clark still gonna be going out? What's what's happening there? Because <laughs> like because her dad's been booted out, but she's already kind of turned against him, so. It's a you know I'm I'm it's also one of those ways, as with the villain in Superman three, I find it interesting that those characters have never turned up in any form elsewhere. Mm. Nuclear Man recently appeared in a Superman comic for the first time, literally as a pretty much just a, not exactly as a gag, but you know because the comic itself was serious, but literally like it was a um it was in it was in the phantom zone it was like he and he was basically a kryptonian weapon that had been left there and literally you turn the page and there's a full page splash of nuclear man who's never appeared in a proper dc comic before so that was quite hilarious and uh you know but yeah it wasn't there wasn't a full storyline out of it it was pretty much just a, as a one-off scene but <laughs> yeah but i don't know I, th- I think you i think you could potentially you could take those characters and that dynamic and like do a better story with them <laughs> at some point and i'm surprised that nobody has other than the fact that I'll from the sound of it they're doing it in supergirl updated if they uh show up on supergirl yeah. at any point I'll, well if I'll it let you guys listen know. if if any iteration from you know just purely from the fact that they've they've had john cryer in there just you know purely because True. of the fact that he was in this if any iteration of of superman media was gonna touch on something from this film it would probably be supergirl from the sound yeah. of it so yeah maybe i should watch some more of it one day <laughs> not enough time for telly <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think we have pretty comprehensively covered Superman 4. Uh, and if we haven't covered it comprehensively, then as I say, you can go and listen to the likes of Cinema Limbo and I think Pod did a live special on it. And the How Did This Get Made episode, as I say, featuring Natasha Leon is... I don't think Natasha Leon had ever seen any Superman film ever <laughs> before watching yeah. Superman 4 for How Did This Get Made. So that's a very entertaining listen. Nice. Um, if, if, if our, like two and a half or more hours on this wasn't enough for you <laughs> that's about it we don't, we don't even need to do comics recommendations do because we kind of already talked them about about them a little bit um yes they just i looked it up james the one was from like 1985 so yeah it, it predates this film as well as those other comics so oh yeah i'm, I'm not sure if it does the nuclear disarmament thing now i think it does oh but right i don't know yeah yeah uh <laughs> but those would be our comics recommendations do you want to play a game uh, Oh yeah, we, we do that. Don't we? <laughs> we do that sometimes. <laughs> have you got, have you got one? I've got a little little game. Oh, if James has got a game, let's do a game. Oh, I'm just trying to figure out how to play it. Let's see, two, three, four, five. Six. Okay, I've got seven questions. You know what? I don't think these questions are actually. Uh, most of these are borderline unanswerable. So if you have an answer, shout it out, and we'll see if it's correct, <laughs> and I will keep score. So. One of the things that I like about the latter two Superman films is that they sort of bring the humour back to Superman. Um, So what I've got here are some jokes. And I think you maybe could guess the answer. Probably not. But I I hope you'll enjoy the jokes anyway. So I'm going to give you a feed line. I want you to to try and come up with a punchline. And if it matches the punchline or is actually good, I'll give you a point. Okay, so I'm going to start. What do you get if you cross the Man of Steel with a hot vegetable broth? The spoon of... Uh, Superman. Superman it is. Seb no. gets one point. <laughs> yeah, that makes far more sense. 
What sporting event might you find in Superman's kitchen? Wow. Is this also related to Superman? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> Are they all going to be super They're not related? all super related. A super, super spoon. I don't know why I wanted to put spoon in there so badly. Joe's going to be very upset with you guys. It is the Super Bowl. Oh. wow. Yeah. Okay. Here's my favorite one. Why can't Superman rob graves under the cover of darkness? Because he doesn't like a crypt at night. Kryptonite, exactly. <laughs> wow, you're good at these. I need to. I don't see. You guys have an advantage of being dad. So ah, this dad is true. We are. We are good at that. I'm lacking yep. in this department. Um, why does Superman have a lowercase s on his chest? Um, it's not an s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you give up. Okay. Yeah. I can hear you giving up. Because not all heroes wear caps. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> dear oh dear um okay three more to go seb you're in the Did lead Bob at the Monkhouse moment right there <laughs> yeah <laughs> um what does superman use to dry himself a cape a cape, <laughs> a cape. Um, i don't know <laughs> seb any guess i'm trying to think is something to do with a towel no mm. no go on <laughs> he uses a towel, a towel. oh <laughs> okay um why couldn't superman find the local playground when he was a child People are going to love the... Because he was haunted People are going to love the dead air on this. People are going to love the dead air on this. Oh, I was going to say because he's haunted by that scene in Man of Steel where he takes <laughs> everyone x-rays vision and he's too traumatized to go through the <laughs> I mean, that's not the answer, but I'm going to give you a point for it because I enjoyed it. Great. Uh, the answer is because adult supervision is required. Oh. Okay, last one. This is my favorite. I've saved it. How does Superman stay so fit? The fortress of... <laughs> <laughs> the gym. <laughs> Sorry. Save any guess? No. <laughs> it's Cal Aesthetics. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm mostly delighted by how delighted you are by that. I had one, a feeling that round was for me, not you guys, but I'm I was happy with it. You drew as well, so the real winner is me. Well, right. I, I hope I hope you're very happy with it. I yourself. am extremely happy. Did you not hear me laughing? Yeah. <laughs> Next, ne- next time I forget that we do a game at the end of the episode, I'm just going to keep forgetting. Uh, three hours I've been waiting for that. I was not disappointed. Yeah, that, you're the only one. <laughs> they were good. Some of those were good. Some were a stretch, but... I kind of want to find some more now. I'll come, I'll come up with some more. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Well, that brings us then, definitely, to the end of our Superman 4 episode. Uh, thanks, Caroline, and apologies. Um, <laughs> is there anything particular recent that you'd like to to give a, a plug to? Uh, no, my Supergirl stuff you can always read. I really actually love talking about the Soups family. And Superman just popped up on Crisis on Infinite Earths. So, I don't know. I'll just give a plug to the Arrowverse. How, how was out. Crisis? Were you happy with it? Happy, happy with how yeah, it ended? Yeah, I was overall. It had its ups and downs, but I think it was fun and cool and is producing some cool stuff going forward. So if you if people have fallen off the bandwagon, jump back on. The universe got reset. Never a better time to jump in. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that, um, bearing in mind that, like, because I saw that, you know, that, that final sequence and that shot of, like, the, the effectively the new Justice League together and stuff, mm-hmm. is Superman going to be kind of more prominently in stuff now then? 
So they're giving him a spinoff TV show. Oh, yeah, they're Lois doing a Lois and Clark. Getting yeah, a, yeah. yeah, a spinoff. So I don't know when that's starting. I think that now it feels like Superman is always going to show up in the crossovers. Mm. I, and I don't think, sort of as the status quo, I don't think we're going to get that many crossovers in general until the crossovers happen. You know what I mean? I don't think we're going to get a bunch of random appearances. Mm. But I do feel like he's he's become a staple of the Arrowverse crossovers. Mm. And of course, well, they've done Crisis on Infinite Earth, so we've just got Infinite Crisis, Identity Crisis. You've got that one to look forward to. <laughs> final Crisis, which wasn't the final one. Uh, all sorts. Lots to look forward to. Great. Um, well, thanks for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find more and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Player FM, Overcast, Google, or your podcast app of choice. Uh, I am going to get in contact with Stitcher to try and find out why they haven't updated since like sometime last year, but hopefully those of you who listen on Stitcher have found us elsewhere instead. You can find a full index of every episode at cinematicuniverse.com, along with all of the subscription feed links and a big archive of features and reviews. You can help us out by rating or reviewing on your podcast platform, uh, or if your podcast platform doesn't have reviews just go and do it on itunes uh, and you can really help us out by, by backing the patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic universe which helps out with our production costs thanks as ever to everybody who backs us on there we really appreciate it uh, if you want to join them you'll get to hear episodes ad free and sometimes early as well as bonus material which we will do some more of at some point soon we've got some thoughts on stuff we're going to put on there uh, you can buy our merchandise at cinematicu.redbubble.com get in touch with us on facebook on twitter at cine underscore verse or with an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com thanks for listening and we'll see you next week for uh oh it's going to be birds of prey time isn't it so um we'll all be back for that one and we'll see you then goodbye bye